everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Time to talk about the comics for the week of September 6th, 2022. DC Spotlight. Uh, Rocky and I are here to break them down into great detail. Uh, so, as always, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Don't forget, if you haven't read these DC books and want to read them without spoilers, probably go read them first and come back and check us out. So, I thought it was a really great week. I do sort of wish that Flashpoint Beyond and Dark Crisis came out in different weeks because they're always books I really look forward to and they haven't let me down yet. Um, you know, maybe Dark Crisis started off a little slow for me, but I feel like it's hitting its stride. Um, and yeah, I thought they were both pretty pretty solid this week. Um, got the cover of Flashpoint Beyond right there. It reminds me, I, I have these from a few years ago. I have these. Poker. Oh, the chips. Wayne Wayne Casino chips. Yes, Wayne Casino. Yeah, I have like five or six of them. And I actually I saw that cover. That's a Mitch Garrett's cover. I saw that cover, and it reminded me that I wish I had more of these. Like I wish I had enough to make a whole set. To actually, play poker with. So yeah. I jumped on eBay today. I was like, oh, I wonder if there's any for sale. Couldn't find a single one. There are some action figures that come with one chip, but yeah, they were pretty hard to get. Even. Even the the year that they handed them out, 2011 at San Diego, and I was only there like one day that year. So, um, but I've got I don't know five or six of them. They're cool to have. But anyway, uh, what did you think of the week? You sounded like before we started recording, you felt like it was wasn't as good as it could have been. Well, I thought I thought Dark Crisis issue four or seven we'll be reviewing. I thought Dark Crisis was a little bit of a lull for me, but I, I it's clear that it still feels like setup. You know, it still feels like there's things are being set up and it's already issue four of seven already. So I kind of wish it was a little bit faster paced, but I, it's clearly building to something. I, I, I like Flashpoint Beyond. I, I, I've been enjoying that. Uh, and there, there's some good ones here. Uh, Shazam, I'm really enjoying a Mary Marvel and Shazam, uh, which it's, I'm, and even Nubia was actually, you know, while it's <laughs> Nubia always has had some issues and I've had some problems with the Wonder Woman mythology overall, with the Wonder Woman titles. But Nubia at least has a story that that I think has an ending and is building toward its own mythology, which is uh, uh, interesting. Batman, I thought was great, was really good this week. Sardaski's Batman continues to uh, impress me. And uh, and even uh, like a like a sort of like a Super Sons or Super Kids uh, story for Dark Knights of Steel. So. Uh, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to hear your thoughts on all of it, too. Yeah, Dark Knights of Steel for me was kind of a strange one in a way. Uh, so, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But let's kick it off with Batman Beyond Neo Year. This is the final issue, issue number six, although to skip to the end, skip to the punchline, uh, it does say at the very end of the story, you know, Batman Beyond will return in 2023. So, whether that's with Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing writing it, I sort of think it will be. I have absolutely no – I haven't talked to Colin. I haven't talked to Jansen, uh, Jackson, although they will be on the show later this week uh, on the Comic Source podcast to talk about their upcoming series from IDW, Star Trek. Um, and then uh, probably not that episode, but I'll probably do a separate episode with them uh, maybe in a few weeks or a month or so talking about uh, their DC work, their Marvel work. Um, they're writing the Captain America series, the one that starts Steve Rogers, and I had a lengthy discussion with them about Captain America at San Diego Comic Con. So, yeah, we'll we'll talk, we'll touch on it, we'll touch on Batman Beyond, we'll touch on Captain America, but mostly the episode coming up this week will be 
about Star Trek unless they take it in a, def- in a different direction. But then, yeah, look for another return visit in a few weeks with uh, with more detail. But I, I have a feeling – and the reason that I say that, that I think it'll be them, is just based on this story, based on what we got and how this really is sort of a new direction for Batman Beyond ever since the older Bruce Wayne has been killed by Gotham City itself – it, it, they've really established some good supporting characters here and kind of a new direction for Batman Beyond. Uh, you know, I never have been that interested in Batman Beyond previously. I haven't read a ton of it. So it's hard for me to say whether this works better or or not. Um, but what I will say is, like, I am I am now reading it. So that's got to count for something, right? Um, yeah. As opposed to, I, I mean, part of the reason I never read Batman Beyond was it, it always felt a little two-dimensional to me with the Joker's gang and, you know, Bruce still being there as a mentor to Terry. And it, it felt very much like a cartoon, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it lacks a little bit of um, sophistication in my mind. Again, there's nothing wrong with pulling from animation. Certainly Batman the Animated Series you know, is it, it won awards. It's revered as bringing so many people into the Batman mythos and it's kind of gothic style and Kevin Conroy and Bruce Tim and Paul Dini and all those guys that were involved, you know, household names and, and you know, tons of credit for in, introducing a new version of Batman, a more serious version of Batman, even though it was a cartoon to a whole new generation of, of, um, of comic book readers, of, of Batman fans. So, you know, I'm not, discounting animation at all. But what I'm saying is a lot of times you can't be that sophisticated or that complicated because you have a half hour show. You got to, you lose maybe a third of that for commercials. You got, you know, 20 minutes. You want to keep it simple. Um, And so I, I don't think at least again, I haven't read any, I know they've added other things in. There was even a female Batman beyond at one point uh, that in the Dan Jurgens run, but I just, I just haven't read that stuff. So I can't speak to it, but what I can say is this run was really, really great. I loved the uh, the character of Lumos that they created as almost like a Lex Luthor type villain in terms of being really smart, uh, very affluent, and you know just like Luthor has become in, in Superman comics, not a hundred percent evil. You know, maybe he's leaned you know more back that way, but we certainly saw him as a hero in Action Comics Rebirth. And this Lumos guy, he's yeah, he's pretty bad, but yet he, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I guess is what we get a little bit here. And even at the end, after they've they've stopped Gotham City, uh, its plans to sort of enslave the population, you've got Lumos there. Uh, chasing the money, you know, he does everything out of greed. He said so himself, uh, but he's actually helping the city because he can, he can charge, you know, a ridiculous sum of money to go in and find this hidden malware that's in all the municipal system. So I like that he, going forward, it seems like he's still going to be part of it. This detective um, beam, uh, kind of a love interest for Terry. Uh, I enjoy her being boomna, boom, boom, ma. Uh, Heck of a yeah. name. <laughs> yeah, I still can't get used to saying it. So, so that's great. Seeing the older Barbara Gordon is great. I thought the artwork, it, it kind of interesting. So I, I thought the artwork was really solid. But one thing that I'll say about um, the artwork here from Max Dunbar, it kind of reminded me more of Bernard Chang's art that yeah. was in the most recent version than, than previously. I Like I, I felt like his 
figure work here was a little more angular than it's been. Maybe it's just a, a product of having Terry in the armor and he, he made the armor look kind of angular, especially with the wings, they have points on them and whatnot. So maybe that's what it was that made me feel like that. But uh, the art is really strong. The color works really strong. I enjoyed this. It feels like a complete story. Like, you know, maybe they didn't know, maybe Jackson and Colin didn't know if they were going to get to tell more. So they did give a satisfying story here, but I think, you know, if they're bringing it back, especially with these two, then it must've sold well enough. Um, so I thought it was great. And that double page spread when, uh, when Lumos agree, first he agrees, Hey, you know, uh, I want power. I want to have control over people. I'm willing to work with Gotham city and then Gotham starts infecting him and kind of corrupts him with this hard light looking uh, armor. And man, that, that double page or that full page splashes I thought was amazing. Um, so all in all, this was very satisfying. I, you know, it's not uh, an exaggeration to say this is the best Batman beyond arc I've ever read. Cause it's the only Batman beyond arc that I've ever read, but I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was well done. Um, if I can nitpick about anything, I don't necessarily feel like I got a lot of characterization for Terry McGinnis other than he's kind of tenacious like Bruce, right? Like he, he never gave up even though he, the odds looked long <laughs> for, for quite a while. Um, but that's sort of superficial. Uh, you know, I was just talking about keeping things simple. Uh, so I, I do hope if Jackson, uh, Lansing and Colin Kelly are the writers that continue this run of Batman beyond that they, kind of expand on that in their next go round, uh, expand on the characterization of Terry. Cause I know he's not as simple as he's, he's portrayed here. I mean, I think previously the most Batman beyond thing I'd read is I think he was in the, the weekly was a new 52 features end. I think he was in that. Yeah. Um, but that's been so long ago. I don't even really remember his characterization there to be honest, other than, you know, generic hero guy. Um, but all in all, I, I did enjoy this. What did you think? I agree with you. I'm not, I've never been a big Batman Beyond fan, but this was to be one of the reasons why I've never been a big fan is that it always feels Batman Beyond just feels every story I've ever read of Batman Beyond, it's never had an ending. It always feels like he's always fighting uh, a never ending battle and he can never win uh, because the future, there's always some. I just never got a sense of, of a coherent story at any point. And then there was the future's end was a disaster. And I, 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 I vowed I would, I, I tried giving it a try with Future's End and I, I couldn't, I didn't like it. And this, this, this actually has an ending. I actually, this story has an ending and I kind of like it. I like the, I like the romance, the hint of the romancer. I like the boom character. I like, I actually six issues. It has a self-contained story and I probably will come back and, get, and give it a, give it a look, see when it comes back in 2023. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind this. And, and I'm actually kind of surprised because I kind of like the older Bruce Wayne as the mentor from the cartoon, the odd time that I did watch it, but this actually worked for me. So, and, uh, you know, Kelly and Lansing don't always, uh, they're always kind of hit and miss with me, but this is one where I actually, you know, I'll give them props. I, I enjoyed this and I, I, I enjoyed the ending and uh, I love the character design. I wish we'd actually see more of this, uh, I don't even know what, what the character is called. The Gotham, when it infects uh, Lumos there, that, that does look extraordinary. It almost looks like a, you know, a cross between a psychotic, Hawkman and or crazy demon angel holding. Uh, I mean, it just it looks really epic. It looks really really well done. I like Mc, Todd McFarlane should do an, a figure like that of, of this character. It's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, very well done. And for six issues, I mean, you know, it's 
Uh, I would recommend people, if you haven't not checked out Batman Beyond before, this is a six-issue self-contained story, and you get the gist of Batman Beyond, so it's pretty good. Well, when we saw previously the um, uh, Gotham, you remember when uh, Terry went to the mayor's mansion, and it turns out it was like this like holodeck-like trap, and it yeah. transformed. It turned out to just be some, some old homeless guy that it transformed. And he fought that that's the same kind of hard light projection that it transformed the homeless guy into that it transforms Lumos into. And I think if I remember correctly in that issue, it was just referred to as sword. Mm-hmm. So this one looks a very similar. Um, I think his little spike on the forehead for the homeless guy might've been blue here. Right. It's white, with like hard light on it. So yeah, the sword uh, of Gotham, right? Yeah, so I think yeah, I, I would think it's the same, but yeah, I mean that 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 splash page is just it was just so good. It looks so menacing and terrifying. So yeah, uh, yeah, and again, like like you you and I both said, I mean, despite the difficulty of saying her name, be, Beam Boom Not Boom Ma, <laughs> I, I can't, still can't say. It. I think again, a very interesting character. I think uh, Lumos is an interesting character. So yeah, um, look forward to the return, especially if it's those same two guys writing it. Uh, so you mentioned uh, kind of some kids stories here. So we got Dark Knights of Steel, Tales from the Three Kingdoms. And it is interesting that they're all sort of prequel. We get three stories in here. First one's written by Tom Taylor, art and color by Casper Wingard, letters by Wes Abbott, story of uh, some orphans, including Jimmy Olsen um, in in the kingdom of the elves, I guess you'd say, which was which was kind of interesting. I'll let Rocky get into detail. The second story is The Flock, written by Jay Kristoff, who I'm not familiar with. The art is by Sean Isaacs, colored by Ramudo Farhada Jr., lettered by Wes Abbott. Uh, big fan of Sean Isaacs. If that name sounds familiar, we just talked about his first issue of Thunderbolts last New Comics Wednesday that Jim Zub is writing. And then the last story, I'm just looking for the credits here, uh, gives us the Dark Knights of Steel version of Bane. It's written by C.S. Picot. The art is by Michelle Bandini, and colors are by Antonio Fabello with letters by Wes Abbott. So uh, give us your thoughts on these three stories. Uh, I only – actually, I, I I just skimmered the first two, and I just I just sort of read the – I just read the Bane one was because I, I, saw, I saw somebody that looked like Bane, and I thought, I, I got to read this. I really like the Bane one, but I didn't. I, I don't feel I, I, sh- I can comment on the first two. I'll let you comment on those. But the, the third story with Bane, I, I actually quite liked because uh, the, the whole idea that that Bane is actually trying to recruit and actually trained uh, uh, trained a young uh, Bruce Wayne to sort of uh, actually obtain his birthright to overthrow the the L's, so to speak, and that he ends up betraying Bane and. And swearing allegiance to the elves. Uh, I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's kind of Game of Thrones like. I thought it was kind of cool, and uh, I I, re- I thought it was really well done. And I I, I also uh, quite like the art as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to reading the first two in greater detail. I apologize, Jace. I like being more prepared here. The weekend just got a little ahead of me with a lot of visits with uh, relatives here. But I, I I enjoyed the Bane story, and uh, uh, yeah, beyond that, I. Yeah, I'll have to let you talk about the other two. Okay. Uh, yeah, no worries. Life definitely happens. Um, so the first one, I th- I think the art perfectly suits it by Casper Wingard, whose art to me um, kind of suits more all ages type stories. 
And this is certainly a, a good introduction into kind of the, the world of, um, that Tom Taylor has, has created here, the world of, uh, the world of Dark Knights of Steel. Um, I sort of feel like, you know, the popularity of this, popularity of DC versus vampires, popularity of deceased, all these different worlds that uh, Tom Taylor has created within the DC universe itself. Like, oh, what if we took the DC universe and we mixed it with this or mixed it with that? And so, I mean, it is, it is a good way to, uh, to sort of bring in new readers, right? You mentioned Game of Thrones. Um, you know, this could possibly get somebody who's interested in fantasy. It could be their gateway into the, the DCU. And maybe they only read Dark Knights of Steel stuff to start, but they could, you know, branch out to other things. So so that's interesting for me. That being said, I'm not the biggest fan of Dark Knights of Steel. I've, I've mentioned it. While I find it sort of interesting and cool to see these different versions and happy to see these different versions of characters, it's just... I'm, I don't love it the way some some people love it. So, although this first story is is interesting with uh, orphans that are being taken from this uh, from this orphanage, Arkham Orphanage, um, including Jimmy Olsen and uh, Batman and Superman and Supergirl, you know their Dark Knights of Steel counterparts go looking for these. Uh, orphans that are supposedly kidnapped and it's man bat who's taken them and they attack man bat and the orphans are like, no, no, no. Again, a little bit tropey, a little bit predictable to been done before. No man bat's actually not the bad guy. The bad guy's actually Arkham, uh, female Arkham here. Who's performing experiments on these kids and, uh, they go and they, they, uh, imprison her and say, Oh, you know, it's not, it's not the the kids. She's been experimenting on them. Uh, it's not man bat. Uh, so again, it's, it's been done before. And the thing that, that most bothered me about it. So they take this Arkham character, uh, Elizabeth Arkham is her name, who's been experimenting on these kids and some of them have been deformed and given powers, but you know, at a cost. And they, like I said, they, they imprison her. They throw her in the dungeon of the castle. Uh, uh actually, I'm sorry. They don't even get that far. Um, she's being supposedly taken to the dungeon of the castle in this wagon with bars on the windows and who shows up, but Amanda Waller, uh, and says, Hey, you're going to be working in service to the kingdom. And Elizabeth Arkham says, wow, how would the king and queen feel about this service? And uh, Waller says, well, there's no reason for them to know you work for me now. And all I could think, all I could think was it doesn't matter the world. It doesn't matter the version of DC multiverse that Amanda Waller is in no matter what, no matter what version, she's a piece of shit in all of them. And I really can't stand her. Like how, how is she any different than Lex Luthor? This is totally something Luthor would do. She's just such a piece of crap. Can't even get away from her being a piece of crap in this dark Knights of steel. So again, thought it was kind of predictable. It, was, it definitely wasn't my favorite. I, I enjoyed the second one a lot more. It's basically their version of Halloween and Harley and Clark and Bruce go out into the city at Harley at Harley's urging because she thinks that Clark needs to see kind of how his kingdom really is. And this is a way he can do it in disguise without anybody finding him. Bruce tags along because Bruce, you know, um, he has sworn, as you mentioned, to protect the elves. Uh, but what ends up happening is they get uh, Harley's wearing this necklace that gets stolen by the Robins, which is the, this gang of kids and it's, it's everybody you would expect. It's Tim Drake. It's Damien. It's, um, it's Jason Todd. It's Stephanie Brown. And they're 
basically they they steal the necklace because they're Robin Hoods, if you will. And uh, they say, hey, we only steal from people who look like they can afford it. And at the end of the story, basically, um, they agree to sort of work with the elves to help make the kingdom a better place. So we've seen some Robins show up in the main story. So this is kind of how they, they meet and, and get involved. And then you mentioned the story with Bane, which I, I th- thought was kind of interesting that Bruce be- betrays Bane at the end. The other thing of it is like when you think about it, Bane is sort of not a bad guy, but he sort of is, you know, like his loyalties to the Waynes. Um, so you can kind of see. And so I was like, oh, Bane's not really a bad guy because the L's do end up harming the kingdom but then at the same time not really well, so, i think it's interesting because uh now in the main storyline it might be that bruce ends up going to uh recruiting bane because he if he feels that you know the l that he's been betrayed so it might make for some interesting uh alliances moving forward in this in the main story proper yeah and, and the other part about all this is that i feel like the main story has lost momentum it's i feel like it's been forever since we've had an issue yeah it hasn't been moving along very quickly because um, Tom Taylor's been throwing his curveballs, but we're, we're still not really sure who the big bad is. You know, there's hints of somebody from outer space. Is it the Green Man? Does that mean it's, it's Green Lantern? Is it somebody um, that's infected with Krypton? Like, like we just don't know. But the, yeah. at times you felt like the Elves were good. They were aligned with the Waynes, and then the Waynes were killed. But are the L's really bad? Are they not? Like at times we've thought that even Superman himself was the bad guy and then maybe not. I, like, I don't know. Again, it's dragged on too long <laughs> with all this convoluted. I know Tom Taylor's trying to make it interesting, but some sometimes straightforward and certainly being released on schedule is best. So anyway, uh, let's move on. Up next, we have Sword of Azrael Book 2. This is from writer Dan Waters. Art is by Nicola Semegia. Colors by Marisa Louise. Letters by Hassan Atman Elhau. Uh, so what I really like about this, well, first of all, I have to say that there's a third variant cover. There's four different covers. There are so many freaking covers on all the books this week. I don't know why there's so many. But one of them is a variant cover by Gleb Melnikov. Uh, Matthias Manini. And Gleb Meldikoff. And maybe it's just because of the trade dress that harkens back to um, kind of the – it's got the same sort of wording and trade dress that the third uh, – or that the um, original sort of Azrael mm-hmm. miniseries had. And so, uh, yeah, it I for a second, I had to do a double take. I'm like, is that Joe Casada? I mean, it looks so much like the original uh, – certainly the original style – and again, probably the sort of Azrael banner and trade dress makes it makes me you know think of that. But it's just so yeah, it's up on the screen if you're watching us on on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that cover. I was like, oh crap, is that Joe Casada? Turns out no, but uh, it is really interesting. Um, the other part of this, um, and I'll let Rocky talk a little more about what actually happens in the story. But the reason that I'm enjoying this, uh, and it has gotten better as it's gone on. So I, I mentioned when we first read uh, Azrael, when he first came back in Batman Urban Legends by the uh, same writer, Dan Waters, how it, it it felt like it was leaning into the religious fanaticism of John Paul Valley, And I didn't like that 
maybe it's because I was raised Catholic and I really do not need to read anything to do with Catholicism at all. It does not interest me. And to me, that's the least interesting aspect or always has been about Azrael. Um, and it was it, it just so much of the religion stuff just didn't interest me. Like it was a slog to read. But what's so great about what Dan Waters has done. So it's almost like he feels the way I have. And he's he's gotten to the point where I, I've wanted Azrael to be all along, where I want John P- Paul Valley to be and where I'm mo- most interested in reading about him. And that's this idea of this religious belief that he has, this fanaticism, is programmed into him. It's not real. He doesn't really believe. I mean, certainly when he became Azrael, um, you know, when his father showed up in a, in, in his, at the door of his dorm room, you know, in the last moments of his life, and it activated the programming of the system that was uh, implanted in John Paul Valley so long ago, that's when the belief came. The belief is part of the programming. It's, he, he wasn't somebody who, you know, he, yes, a religion was somewhat a part of his life, but he, he wasn't some religious nut like Azrael is. And again, that's the least interesting part of the character to me. So Dan Waters has started with that, but is bringing John Va- Paul Valley along to a place where he realizes that that's not where he, he should be. That's not what he actually believes. And all he's trying to do is just control the programming in any way he can. And so this is very much an evolution of the character toward a place where I would like the character to be. So I think that's why I'm enjoying it so much. The other thing that's great is Waters is clearly mining so much of what he planted in those stories, which felt, I felt a little bit at the time when we were reading the Batman Urban Legends story, like, wow, what's the point of this? Um, to, to see him out there working in a hospice facility and, you know, g- going after these, uh, supposed zombies and meeting up with um, one of the Knights of Templar as, you know, an order that supposedly had died. I just, I didn't know what the point of it was. Now we see that those were seeds that were planted by waters because he knew he was going to have this uh, Azrael miniseries or maybe, you know, based on the reception of that uh, urban legend story, he was going to get a chance to do this. So I like where this is going the Nicholas Semeja art. It's not my favorite type of art. It's a little messier and a little more sketchy than I would like. But, you know, seeing Vengeance, uh, the daughter of Bane as a part of the story, and seeing uh, the seeds that have been planted by Waters himself very recently already uh, start to bear fruit is is really interesting to me. I, I like Maybe it's because I lo- have always loved Azrael's visual, why I want to like the character more. And one of the things that's held me back is that religious aspect to the character that I talked about. And it feels like Waters is trying to, I mean, it's always going to have to be part of his character because of his origin and, and, you know, the way they, that the foundation of the character exists. But I I feel like this sort of duality that he's bringing to it, that Azrael is a completely separate persona for John Powell Valley. And he realizes that the belief, the religious beliefs that he's had are all just programmed into him. Like those are interesting aspects of the character to me that I think can get him to a place where, yeah, I would, I would jump on a, an Azrael uh, monthly series without a second thought right now. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? I enjoy this. I I love, uh, I love what Dan Waters is doing here. He's, he's making Azrael. I like that he's further distinguishing Azrael away from Batman. And Azrael is a very different character than Batman, yet ironically enough, of course, because he used to, you know, he's part of that famous storyline. He's, uh, he, uh, 
but he is nonetheless a, a, a very unique character. And Dan Waters is doing a great job continuing to make him unique. Uh, he does a masterful job here with uh, with two other characters: this Sariel, this angel of death, who uh, we we uh, Azrael uh, originally wants to take out. John Paul Van John Paul Valley, who has, of course, he's got this programmed. He's programmed. His faith is almost programmed into him, and he's let you know he, this Sariel, this woman, this angel of death. She also he's he's led to believe has some programming of her own. And but she's she's killed a bunch of people. She kills a bunch of priests, and yet uh, vengeance, uh, vengeance, and this poor fellow, and this poor fellow woman is a Templar knight who Azrael believes was wiped out in the past, thousands of years ago. But so, but we still have this, we have this poor fellow, this Templar knight, working with vengeance uh, because they know the importance of this Sariel. Now. Uh, why why is it important that they save this Sariel? We we don't really know yet, but uh, it's very interesting that this Sariel, it's revealed, is actually an angel. She doesn't have programming, and that's the big reveal at the end, that this Sariel isn't programmed. She's an actual angel, and she's an angel of death. It's it's quite interesting, and and you touched upon just the the themes of 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 religion of faith. What does Jean Paul Valley actually believe? Is it all programming? Is he going to discover? A new faith or his own kind of faith? How much of uh, how much of what John Powell Valley b- thinks and believes? How much of it is part of the program versus what does he actually believe? Because the way Dan Waters has masterfully uh, built some of these these John Powell Valley stories uh, in in various Batman books, Batman Urban Legends, and there was a there was a there was a there was a one shot. I think there was the, the, the first issue of the Here. I mean. We're, we're almost, it's almost as if he's got two sides of him. He's, he's, he's kind of schizophrenic. He's got two personalities, but he kind of doesn't, but he's got like the real fanatical religious side that, that it will, will go so far as to kill, uh, if, if necessary in, in, in the fighting for Christ. And, uh, and so it's very interesting that he ends up fighting this. He, he, he thinks he's going to really do some good by taking out this Sariel, this angel of death, but yet, poor fellow is actually a Templar Knight that has as much honor as he does. And and she's tied up because the Templar Knights were created initially to eliminate the world of Lazarus pits. And so that's kind of interesting there too. Uh, so all this, how all this is going to weave, uh, weave together. So uh, I'm really curious. I'm not, I don't know where this is going, but Dan Waters has done a really good job and we've stuck with it. Fortunately, we've read all the backstory. This is really good. And I think uh, I can't wait this is going to make for a good trade because so far this is a story that it's consistent. It's really built up and it's, it does seem to be going somewhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the characters in particular, poor fellow. She's, she's my favorite character uh, so far, but we'll, we'll see as it moves forward. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent convinced. Sariel is actually an angel. I don't necessarily believe anything that, that poor fellow says, cause she's certainly trying to manipulate Sariel into coming with her. Yeah. Um, but she could, she could be, she could be, I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman 127 from writer Chip Zdarsky. Again, a ton of covers, the main cover by Jorge Jimenez. I wanted to like it more, but the fact that you can see Batman's eye through the lens just freaked me out. <laughs> I couldn't stop looking at that eye. Just thought it was kind of weird, but, uh, anyway, there's, yeah, there's a Harley Quinn 30th anniversary cover and there's a cover by Alex Garner and yeah, t- tons of covers. Anyway, um, Jorge Jimenez is also the 
uh, interior artist. I think I mentioned Zadarsky is the writer. We've got uh, Tome More as the colorist and Clayton Cowell does the letters. Um, this was uh, an interesting one and um, not to, you know, toot my own horn and say, I told you so, but exactly as I predicted, you know, it's Batman himself who created failsafe for exactly the reasons that you think, you know, we have a, an, an early scene where Superman shows up and the scene takes place right after uh, justice league tower of Babel storyline. That's the one where they found out that Batman had files on all the other justice leaguers with a way to defeat them. Ra's al Ghul stole them. It was a big battle. Again, it's a very famous story. And, uh, Superman asks, you know, well, what about how we beat you? You know, you're supposedly the, the most formidable of us all. You know, what's your what's your plan? So come to find out Zdarsky's mining from the Grant Morrison run, the Batman R.I.P. storyline and Morrison throughout his whole run because he's Morrison and he, it's what it's what they like to do had gone back. And from way back, Batman 113, this Batman uh, who was from an alien planet, actually. Uh, that's where, the, you know, Bruce Wayne got this idea of the, this Batman of Zer and R. And Morrison, kind of interesting. So that was the name of the planet, right? Zer and R. And what Morrison did was say Batman actually got that name from hearing the last words or some of the last words from Thomas Wayne, Zorro in Arkham. It was him saying the night of his death that, yeah, if a character like Zorro was around in the real world, he'd end up in Arkham. And that kind of stuck in, in Bruce's mind. And Bruce created this persona, this Batman of Zen and uh, Zer and R, who is supposedly like the persona of Batman without Bruce Wayne, right? Without the morality of Bruce Wayne or the weaknesses of Bruce Wayne to, ho to hold him back. So how did Batman create failsafe? Well, he... You know, in, in his way, it's not really explained how he did it, but in his way, he's created this backup for Batman. When when there's a challenge that's way too hard for Bruce Wayne Batman to um, to handle, he will transform and become the ultimate Batman, which is the Batman of Zer and R. And when he transforms that into that, this Batman of Zer and R, his his answer to how to stop Batman is to create this failsafe character. So failsafe is sort of the backup plan of a backup plan for the original Batman. So that's why Bruce doesn't have any knowledge of uh, how to defeat failsafe or any knowledge that he existed, but there's a vague familiarity there. And so it's exactly, as I said, uh, failsafe was, you know, created by Bruce himself, you know, regardless of whatever, whatever um, kind of window dressing that Zdarsky puts on there. It, it was Bruce himself who has created this and, um, even this Batman Zer in R, uh, cause again, it is still Bruce Wayne's body. And as he's fighting, uh, alongside Tim Drake trying to defeat this android, uh, he still is in Bruce Wayne's body, which has been, uh, through the ringer over these last few issues fighting failsafe. And obviously Bruce <laughs> did not build in or, uh, allow there to be any, any weaknesses. So as uh, Zer in R is getting his butt kicked, just the way that he's talking and the way he's dealing with this Android kind of prompts Bruce Wayne, who's sort of, it's almost like the way Bruce Banner is inside the Hulk right now, right? Where he, he's like this uh, observer, yeah. this impartial observer. He, he does not like the way Batman Zer and R is, is talking about 
Tim Drake as this expendable soldier and it kind of awakens Bruce and he's like, you know, this is not the right way to handle this. Uh, so he kind of awakens and, and he's back and it's the original, even though he's still wearing the Zur NR bright yellow, red, purple costume, which for some reason, as garish as it is, I sort of like it <laughs> as terrible as it is to admit. Um, but anyway, uh, he, he's getting, he's getting his butt kicked. Like whether it's Zur NR, whether it's Bruce Wayne, it doesn't really matter. Uh, he's been through the ringer and this Android, it has no weaknesses. And luckily at the final moment, uh, Barbara Gordon has called in for reinforcements and who shows up, but Superman, which, you know, some people might not like it. Some Batman fans might not like it. The fact that Bruce has to be bailed out here, but I love it. I love it because, you know, I'm thinking back to the world's finest days. They are supposed to be best friends. Plus that scene when Superman shows up and he's kind of backlit and he, all you see is his silhouette, except for his eyes. He just looks badass. Uh, I prefer that just smaller panel to the full page spread uh, on the next page where we see him standing, the final page where we see uh, Superman standing there. Yeah. It's, it's a decent Superman shot, but the menace of the shadowy eyes and only seeing the eyes by, uh, by Jorge Menes, I thought was great. And I can't wait to see Superman take this thing and crunch it down into a little ball, like a piece of foil and, uh, and have this all be, it even could be anticlimactic. I won't care. It could all be over in one panel, like opening splash page of the next issue is Superman just grabbing the thing and crumpling up into a ball of (laughs) foil. And it would show like, you know, it's always that idea who would win in a fight between Batman and Superman and Batman fans are always like, oh, if Batman has time to prepare, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It wouldn't be like that. Superman could kill him from orbit with a blast of heat vision and game over. Right. Like yeah. I really I almost would rather it be that way, but I am enjoying this. It is interesting. And uh, there is a backup story I'll talk about in a minute, but I want to let Rocky talk about uh, the main story. But the backup story uh, also written by Zadarsky, Two Birds, One Throne finale. Art is by Bellin Ortega, Luis Guerrero on colors, Clayton Collins letters. And we'll talk about the backup in a second. But what did you think about the main story? Uh, well, I've never been a fan of Zurinar. I've never been a fan of Grant Morrison's Batman, quite frankly. I, I love his Batman and Robin, but his, his most of his Batman work I've not really been a huge fan of. Uh, and the whole concept of Zurinar, I always thought was just ridiculous. I, I never really, I wasn't really a big fan of it. But actually, Zadarsky does something here with it that actually is kind of interesting, kind of fun. I like the fact that Bruce Wayne sort of regains, even though he gets defeated, really. Uh, and Superman is there ultimately to supposedly rescue him. We'll find out next issue. I suspect Failsafe might be more of a competition to Superman than uh, <laughs> than super- might might give Superman a surprise. But in any event, it's I like the fact that Bruce Wayne is sort of fighting the is like you said. He's it's like you, you got the Zernar Batman and you got the Bruce Wayne Batman, and there's they're they're cooperating with each other. And I like the fact that Zernar is overconfident. Zernar figures that because he created Failsafe, he can defeat him. But that's not the case here. And that's what I like is that even Zernar is easily is defeated by Failsafe. And Zernar has as much stubbornness as uh as Bruce Wayne does. And so and what's what's even more fascinating is that Zernar can't remember how to defeat failsafe. He knows that there's, there's probably a, an off switch of some kind, but he, yeah, he, he programmed says, himself. So he doesn't yeah. know. So as a, as a failsafe to failsafe, even failsafe doesn't, even failsafe doesn't know how to. <laughs> oh, yeah. He me. says even he knows there's a, 
Yeah. He, at one point, he says he knows there's a self-destruct, and he wants to get back down to the Batcave to set it off. But then uh, Failsafe is like, oh, no, I disabled that self-destruct. Yeah, no. So you you, you really got to wonder here. Well, what I what I hope doesn't happen, and and I fear it's probably going to. Is I don't know. Like I'm not. Um, I, I don't know. You, you know what? Quite frankly, we've gotten uh we've gotten a very uh through Tinian's Batman and through you know for the last four probably the last three or four years we've gotten a Batman that's been significantly um compromised and weaked and he and he's been defeated and he's he's gone through the ringer a few times so maybe this i think we're approaching now our uber batman phase and uh this might be it and you know every now and then every writer assumes batman is more powerful than than most and this whole idea that batman you know of course creates a can create a fail safe that can probably defeat the entire justice league because batman created him i hope it doesn't go to that extreme i mean really if failsafe can take out superman next issue which i mean i can't imagine that that it's going to be like you said i agree with you if superman could just use his heat vision and melt failsafe but i i assume that failsafe has probably got some kryptonite in one of his arms or some damn thing it's gonna uh throw a wrench into things but i hope zardaski it's going to be interesting to see what he does with this because um, because it's going to the extreme. Because I mean, Batman. This is really like ultimately. This is Batman versus his best self. This is Batman versus Batman. So you know, I, I mean, the only one that can defeat Batman is Batman, and and that's kind of what makes this so interesting. Is how in the hell does Batman defeat himself when he he's basically he's created this massive weapon failsafe that ultimately he's taken he's removed from his own memory uh the off switch i mean <laughs> it is uh interesting the art here is fantastic i i love it i love the uh the it, this is re- done really well and i i love the the battle of, of wits the psychological battle between zernar and and bruce wayne it's very well done visually it's really easy to see what's going on uh the art's just stunning the colors are just pop off the page. It's, uh, it's quite good. I, you know, so I am absolutely captivated by this and I'm curious to see if Sardaski goes, if it's, if the ending's going to be, you know, I'm, is it going to be tropey, predictable? I don't know. So far I'm intrigued here and I, and, and I love this cover. It's not too often just Batman's face on a cover looks so amazing, but that, that Batman, that Zurinar, uh face on the cover looks amazing. But I'll let you yeah, talk about I, the backup. Sorry. Yeah, very very curious as you said, because I could see it going like you like you said, you know, the, the, even more into this Uber Batman. And we've talked about it a ton on the. I think we've even dedicated whole episodes to it with with Trevor from Dark Knight Nation about yeah. how Batman just he he you know everybody every writer that comes on wants to top the one and it's this power creep. And I hope Zdarsky doesn't go there. I mean, Zdarsky's best when he's infusing his stories with emotion, and that doesn't need you know, an overpowered Batman. So I hope that it, I hope he keeps that in mind as far as the backup goes. Um, so we basically, we see what happened to the penguin. The penguin didn't kill himself. No surprise there. He's gone to Metropolis. He got a nose job and he's working as a florist of all things. And Catwoman's <laughs> able to track him down and he gives her some mumbo jumbo about, you know, wanting to just escape Gotham. You know, he's, he says he's addicted to Batman. You know, half of what he does in terms of trying to amass power and break the law, or whatever, is to to flaunt it in front of Batman, and he he wants to just get off that treadmill w- once and for all. 
get off that hamster wheel. And so uh, everything, as you might imagine, is not 100% true what he's saying. There is a kernel of truth there. Um, but, you know, he he's not 100%, you know, reformed and wanting to be out of the way. And he actually hopes that his uh, 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 daughter and son that we met last issue actually can can defeat Batman. I, I, don't, I don't know why you would think that. He's never been able to defeat Batman, but he at least wants them to, you know, be a challenge for, for Batman. Uh, the other interesting part of the story is Catwoman tracks him down and does have this heart to heart with him. And again, I think there is some truth to what he's saying, but you know, you, you can't change who you are fundamentally. And he is a criminal fundamentally. But what's interesting is, you know, in this conversation, Catwoman, you know, talks about, yeah, it's, it's tempting. Like what he's talking, I'm not going to give up being Catwoman. I'm not going to, you know, leave Gotham, but I can see where Cobblepot's coming from. So what did you think? Uh, I liked it. You know, I mean, this this was really surprising to me. I, I did not expect this. It, it threw me. Uh, I was so that's a compliment right there. I that I'm, I'm actually enjoying. I enjoy the twist so far in this from this from a story perspective a little bit more than the than the main story by uh, Zardaski. Uh, the the main story has cool action sequences that is I like the art better. But in terms of a story, this is actually really interesting. The idea that can the penguin redeem himself? Now, there's a strong suggestion at the end here that the penguin in, uh, does perhaps have a, an ulterior motive and agenda. And this is all part of a plan and he's trying something new. But that's what makes it even more intriguing. On the surface, I mean, what a great way to deceive Batman. Because Batman... Batman is, I mean, is he, Batman can get get as dark as he wants, but Batman always seems to, he's a sucker for one of his villains redeeming themselves. I mean, he's all, you know, he doesn't kill. He, he has a code against killing Arkham Asylum. I mean, uh, he, you know, I always, it's a revolving door. Well, I mean, holy moly. I mean, why is Harvey Dent the only one that can redeem himself? Why is Two-Face the only one that we seem to get a constant redemption arc from? Now we're getting one with the Penguin and, but yet, Penguin is doing it, you know, he's got an ulterior motive here and he's got a plan. And you got to wonder, did the penguin even have something to do with the death of some of his children? Because he didn't really seem to care one way or the other that some of, I mean, some of his own children, he's got a lot of offspring. He doesn't really seem to give a rat's ass. I mean, he had a really strange clause in the will there that ultimately resulted in a lot of his own children killing him, the, you know. Yeah, he did say, you know, Catwoman brings that up. He did say, well, that wasn't, you know, that was not my intention. Now, granted, yeah. he could be lying. <laughs> yeah. I think, lying I think, well, I suspect maybe he's being a little bit, uh, I think he's maybe fibbing just a bit. But, uh, but, uh, anyways, I, I like the questions I'm asking because it's like, how much of this did he, was he in control of? How much? Because, you know, and, and, and even with utilizing Selena Kyle here, Selena Kyle sort of keeping his secret because Selena Kyle is, is always, is always playing both sides of the fence. That's what makes her so fascinating uh, as a, as a, as a foil to, to Batman, their on again, off again relationship. And she sort of works with, she kind of has that uncomfortable interplay where she's with the, the, the Batman's rogues gallery. And then she's also sleeping with Batman on the side all the time. And so the rogues gallery, I'm always surprised that they trust Selena with every, with anything. And yet, Clearly, the penguin here is trusting her, and I—I I, I mean, God! I, in, in any event, it's—it's it's interesting. I'm—I'm I'm really curious to see where this is going. This to me, this elevates 
Oswald Cobblepot because quite frankly, I, um, I like the fact that he faked his own death and I want to get away from the, the Tom King idea that the, this is a guy that sleeps with penguins and all that little funny nonsense. And this actually, I think, elevates the intelligence of Oswald Cobblepot as being somebody who he's fine. Maybe he's bringing more of an A game here and he's not, you know, he's got a plan. And I, I'm ho- I'm hoping that maybe this is going to play a central role in, in uh, Zardaski because he's done a really good job on his daredevil. He's built a like a long form story. His Daredevil runs fantastic, and I really would love to see Oswald Cobblepot. This is all part of a master plan, and he comes back in all his glory, and maybe as a mafioso in both Metropolis and uh, Gotham. So you know, but uh, maybe that's me expecting too much. But uh, I think Zardaski's bringing his A game on this. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen some somebody recently tried to level up the penguin. Wasn't wasn't it in Mariko Tamaki's detective run where he, you know he said himself he wanted to to level up uh, yeah. when he teamed up with um who was it with uh i can't remember his name now the guy whose daughter was killed in the vile storyline um, uh oh worth worth yeah worth, Mr. Yeah. Worth. When yeah. Teamed, yeah when he teamed up with worth he you yeah. know he was saying i you know i'm tired tired of being overlooked so yeah i mean the whole this whole idea of him is you know kind of a punchline kind of a joke um yeah as the, the you know, just running the casino, or whatever. Yeah, let's get back to him being a little more menacing, a little more formidable. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Black Adam: The Justice Society Files, Adam Smasher number one. This one's from writer Kevin Scott. Uh, Travis Mercer is the artist. John Kalis on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Talk about the art first. Absolutely amazing. Love this Travis Mercer art. Love the colors by John Kalis, which are really bright. This feels very much just like a traditional superhero story, uh, not convoluted, very straightforward. A, a couple of these Justice Society file stories have been a little, uh, I don't want to say confusing, but just based on what they are and how needing to tie into the, uh, the Black Adam movie, they've been a little complicated. This one is not. This is Albert Rothstein, who's uh, Al Pratt, the original Adam. Albert Rothstein is, is his, uh, his nephew and he has the ability to grow in size. And when he grows in, in size, his skin gets thicker and, you know, he can uh, withstand bullets and all that sort of thing. And, and you know, that's explained in the story in, in a very expositional way, but it doesn't come across as boring or like, oh, my God, di- you know, walls of dialogue kind of thing. Uh, of all these uh, one shots, this one is the one that just sort of just reads so free-flowing. The pacing in it is, is fantastic. So it's really great. The art, again, really great. The, uh, the backup story that is continued throughout is here as well. It seems like that story is about to reach its climax. It is also written by Kevin Scott. Oh, I'm sorry, it's written by Brian Q. Miller, actually. Um, and the art in it is, uh, at least in this issue, is by Marco Santucci. So, uh the gr- great colors also by Michael Atea, who often works with Marco Santucci, Rob Lee on letters. So uh, I enjoyed this issue. I thought it was really great. What do you think? I, uh, I actually, this is my least favorite so far out of all of them. I, I, my, my favorite so far has been the Hawkman one shot for the Black Adam movie, because I, I, I just thought it was the most, I thought it was the most uh, interesting, the most frankly creative. And this, I found the story here to be fairly, uh, I guess derivative and tropey, and yet at the same time, I agree with you. It's well paced. The art's fantastic, 
And quite frankly, what else was I expecting? This is actually really good if, for, for people that want. I mean, this basically gives you everything you need to know about Adam Smasher, everything you need to know. It's just very, very predictable. He's just like, he's just, yeah. It is a simple story. Yeah. I'll it's very simple. It's just, and it's sort of like, I hate to say it because, but it's very CW like, it's like, he wants to be a hero, just like his uncle. He wants to be a hero. And, and, and well, I, I would have liked a little bit more about maybe even more of maybe like an origin tale or something, something with a little bit more grit, a little bit, maybe something that maybe we're going to get some of that in the movie. I don't know. You never know. But I, I just felt that you, you had an opportunity here to, to maybe, to, you know, spice things up a bit. Uh, and, and it wasn't really taken, but then cyclone, the cyclone one shot was, was kind of similar, uh, but I felt it was a little bit, uh, I thought it was a little bit more interesting as well, but but hey, this is this is good. I'm I'm getting these. I love. I absolutely love the cover. What a what a great cover with Adam Smash with his hand looking down. That, that looks really good. I the, the cover. I think that there's only um, uh, yeah, there's only cover A. I believe um, if there's more than one covers, we we weren't provided them as a preview copy. But cover A, if if looks really good. And uh, but uh, but yeah, it was nothing. You know. He's just a guy who can grow real big, and and he is a hero, and he basically starts uh, inter gang is dealing with weapons, and he takes out an inter 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 gang uh, who are basically buying and selling weapons, and so it's you know it's it's clearly what one thing that all these one shots going into the Black Adam movie have done is that they made it very clear that the bad guys are inter gang. Intergang is the bad guy. This is the mafioso. This this is the threat that everyone needs to worry about is Intergang. And um yeah. And that's kind of really it. And you mentioned the 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 backup feature, uh, which continues to tell the story. I, I think of a of Aria, Adriana, who is Black Black Adam's love interest in the movie, who I, I believe will probably She'll become ISIS at some point. I'm guessing she's going to become ISIS at some point in the movie or in the inevitable sequel that comes out. And so we get a backdrop of her uh, also, again, trying to basically take on Intergang. And uh, um, yeah, I and we get it's 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 weird. Uh, one of the criticisms I have is I would have much I would have much preferred to have the the this backstory of what appears to be this backstory of, of Black Adam when he was still a slave. That should be a one shot in and of itself, as opposed to interspersed between these three titles. Because it, I feel like I've I've got to remind myself what the story is. I got to go back and read. So I, I I'm actually a little bit lost in this one. Not that it's not tough to catch on to, but I I would have preferred to have had it this story instead of broken up over three issues, I would have preferred to have a one separate uh, story for, for this backup. Cause I think it's actually more interesting and is going to tell us more and give us more Easter eggs for the movie than the actual uh, proper, the actual origins of Adam Smasher and Cyclone uh, to begin with. But, uh, but so, you know, it's, I think it's worth picking up probably for, uh, I like the backup features myself first and foremost. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. The backup story is way, especially when you get such a, a simple story in 
in the beginning in the main story. And again, I mean, the whole reason these exist is to introduce people to these characters, Cyclone and Adam Smasher. So I get why they're a little simpler. Haw- Hawkman, to a lesser extent, he's a little more well-known. Um, so then, yeah, having the most complicated story be in the backup and having it split up. Yeah, definitely a lot harder. So I don't, I don't know that that was the best way to do it. I, I tend to agree with you. What I rather would have seen would have been like a reprint in the, in the backup of like a, a, a previous Adam Smasher story or Nuclon as he was known, you know, same thing with Cyclone, you know, you could put a little eight pager in there, um, from, from previous material. Um, as far as this one being simpler and a little more predictable, I guess you'd say Adam Smasher in a way is sort of a, a very vanilla character. I mean, he hasn't, there's nobody that's done like a, you know, Tom King has not done the pro, the prototype story or the, or the, <laughs> uh, you, you know, the, the end all be all Adam Smasher story. Yeah. I don't know why they ever changed his name. I'm glad they did. This costume is way better. I mean, he very, he was created in the eighties. Uh, he's mm-hmm. part of infinity incorporated and he very much was of the time and had this red Mohawk that looked terrible. Um, and so, yeah, I love this costume. It's, it's much better looking, but yeah, to me, he's, he's, I mean, Jeff Johns did do some things with him in Justice Society of America, but it was never, you know, he, he's not a character that has a lot of complexity to him, like I said. So that he's he, he's got untapped potential, I'll put it that way. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. We've got uh, Dark Crisis number four up next. Kind of kind of interesting. I, I think that I have a specific reason why I like this issue, and I feel like I'm finally get, jumping on board this. And, but I see what Rocky's saying because <laughs> you're sort of coming around to what I was saying before is like, when is this going to get started? This is issue four of seven. And is this going to be another situation just like with Infinite Frontier where we ended up getting three miniseries to tell, you know, one story that then led into this? So, you know, I, I mentioned it before, like, why are we getting all these other series? And it's, it's not even a line wide crossover. And maybe that's okay because they don't really do those anymore. But like, we're over halfway and it's like not much has happened yet. So, uh, but we'll talk about it anyway, written by Joshua Williamson, Daniel Samper on art, Alejandro Sanchez does the colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Give us your thoughts on this. Well, uh, you're right. I mean, generally I I think uh, a lot of this, uh, this, it still feels like setup and I'm still enjoying the story and uh, I'm, I guess I, I don't mind the setup here. I'm just maybe getting a little bit impatient. This is a uh, Hell Jordan. Uh, last issue ended with uh, Hell Jordan going into the 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 black the black lantern power battery, where all the dark, or I guess all the dark, the great darkness is with, within that. And he ends up essentially dying, just like the rest of the Justice League. And he he's finding he's he's also apparently in a world that where. I guess his dream world, just like the other world without a Justice League, all the one shots we've got with all with Superman in a dream world and with Flash and Wonder Woman, et cetera, et cetera. Barry Allen is, it was released, uh, kind of snapped out of it with the help of Wally West and the pages of Flash with that crossover. And so uh, Wally West, or pardon me, Barry Allen ends up meeting uh, Hal Jordan here. And uh, they basically – they basically have a conversation telling telling the reader what we've already known, what we already know. We know from previous issues and we know from all the one shots. And uh, the the whole idea is, you know, again, uh, all the, the Justice League from Earth Zero has always been the, the nexus of the multiverse. And so it 
Joshua Williamson uses it to remind the reader that Earth, the the prime, you know, Earth designate zero is is the nexus of the multiverse. And it's sort of like the the metaverse and it's the most powerful. And and for whatever reason, the heroes, the Justice League heroes, these these world that they're in, they're the the energies that they're using up in these imaginary worlds that they're in is apparently is feeding pariahs machine and we don't know what the machine does but you can guess that the machine is to create an infinite number of earths because pariah's ultimate goal is because he thinks he's in control of the great darkness is to create the infinite uh to create infinite earths again and to restore his original world that existed uh prior to the original crisis and um uh, what's I felt that a lot of this uh, comic, in particular, I was actually disappointed that we. I felt, and some of the scenes that uh, that didn't hit, that didn't resonate with me well at all. And I suspect probably maybe they did resonate with yourself because you say you, you you enjoyed this issue perhaps more than the other ones so far. Is what, there's a scene with Alan Scott? Nightwing is. I think overly depressed with Beast Boy in the hospital. Beast Boy is fine. He says some really dumb things. He actually thinks like Gar believes he was killed. Alan, that's why he's not waking up. Like just really dumb things. Why would you think somebody's not waking up because they act as he thinks Gar thinks he's dead? I mean, he's, he's just ridiculously overly depressed and I just didn't buy it. Uh, I don't think Nightwing would be that depressed. This, I felt that the character of Nightwing feels forced here. He, in order to make, in order to create some drama. So when Nightwing inevitably steps up to the plate, which isn't in this issue, and this is the fourth issue out of seven, but you know, a great, great art and, Great speech by Alan Scott, and I know what Joshua Williamson is going for. It just didn't quite hit me the way that I wanted uh, wanted to hit me, and and I have a feeling that you know there's a lot of people that uh, I, I know there's a lot of people that are impatient, and I'm starting to buy into it a bit. But look, the most positive thing I can say about this, I love the Legion of Doom, and I love the secret the secret Deathstroke secret society. I love it. I mean, the first half of this is so boring, but it really made up for it for me at the end with when Deathstroke and the Secret Society, they attack the Legion of Doom because uh, Black Adam is taught, trying to recruit the Legion of Doom, telling the Legion of Doom, look, that the Justice League is dead. The heroes, the other heroes on this planet, they're useless. They're pathetic. They're, they, they don't know. They, they're, they don't use lethal force. They don't know that what needs to be done here. And, uh, and the fact that they have, um, the fact that they have, uh, they, they attack that Destro controlled who is infected by the great darkness is now going to, uh, they're attacking the Legion of Doom. There, there's a, it's a much more, I found that it was a much more satisfying series of battles when watching the villains fight each other than what, actually when the heroes fought. I actually, I, I enjoyed it a lot more, probably because it always, it, more is at stake. Villains have, villains actually want to kill each uh, actually want to kill each other and it, it feels more real like when Lex Luthor's attacking Deathstroke here Lex Luthor is out to kill Deathstroke because Lex Luthor identifies he knows that Deathstroke's the, the nexus and that he's connected to the dark dark darkness that's that Lex Luthor has detected on the edge of the multiverse so he knows there's a connection between the great darkness and Deathstroke and um and ultimately at the end here 
you know, the, the good guy, the bad guys, I guess the batter guys or Legion or Doom ends up unfortunately getting defeated. And it looks like Pariah manages to successfully create the infinite earth. So the infinite, so Pariah apparently is successful. Uh, all the running around that the Flash, that Barry Allen and, and Hal Jordan are doing, trying to find the other members of the Justice League. Apparently, just by running around from world to world, they're actually feeding, unbeknownst to them, they're actually feeding more power into Pariah's machines that are leading to this creation of the infinite earths. Uh, again, returning them, hearkening them back. And that's how this, this issue ultimately ends. I, the art's fantastic. Uh, da- Daniel Semper, it's, it's just amazing. I, I'm enjoying this. One quick little uh, criticism of Joshua Williamson. Uh, there's a suggestion here by Swamp Thing that uh, Swamp Thing at one point says, uh, and both Swamp Things make an appearance, both the Alan Moore Swamp Thing and, and the Levi Ram V Swamp Thing. They, they suggest that the great darkness is not actually evil. That it's, it's, it just is like the great darkness is just like a shadow. And it's a criticism because I, one of my criticisms of Joshua Williamson's flash run is that he was always contradicting himself. I felt he was always changing the rules. He was, he, he never got it right. What the speed force was, the sage force, the strength force. And he was, you know, he was, uh, he was like on, he was like Scott Snyder on steroids. I mean, it was just insane. And he kept changing the rules and some of his stories and it was inconsistent. And, and I, now all of a sudden we're to believe that the great darkness isn't a big deal anymore. The great darkness is just like, um, the great darkness is, is just like a shadow. And that somebody's corrupting the great darkness and that the great darkness is just is because the swamp thing made a deal with the great darkness. And so we're supposed to believe swamp thing that the great darkness doesn't have any ill intent necessarily. It simply is because it's like night. It's like a shadow. And I'm thinking to myself, no, the great darkness is a big deal. We have a, we have a dark army. We got the great darkness and now the great darkness isn't a big deal. All this build up for how long and the great darkness isn't a big deal. And you know, I, I, I suspect we're leading to something where the big bad reveal who's controlling, who's corrupting the great darkness. Well, I'm guessing it's maybe the anti-monitor or somebody because we, we don't know what's corrupting the great darkness now. All we know is that the great darkness just is. It's not that big a deal. I feel like he's compromised the, the gravitas of this story, but he's actually minimized through Swamp Thing. He's minimized the significance of the threat in my mind, it disappoints me a little bit. And why not have the great darkness? Because bear in mind, when we get into Flashpoint Beyond, Jeff Johns, that issue, uh, the, the great darkness is very clearly indicated in that as being uh, villainous, of being uh, something that can corrupt and, and, and destroy. And here, it's just it's just a shadow. It's just darkness. And it's like, I don't know. So, you know, again, I um, I got mixed feelings about this. Maybe this will all come uh, through in the end, but uh, I feel that. Uh, so I've got some highs and lows, and I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I didn't think he was minimizing the great darkness at all. Um, I, I actually like that because, you know, I've had the question in my mind ever since I, we found out that it was going to be the great darkness and it was going to be Pariah. Um you know, the great darkness isn't a new concept. You know, it first showed up in Legion of Superheroes way back in the early 80s, Paul Levitz, where Darkseid, uh, who didn't, who no longer existed in the 32nd century or 31st century or whatever, uh, but his followers had weaponized it. These worshipers of Darkseid had, had weaponized the great darkness. That's similar to what's happening here. So 
to me, this makes more sense than if it's, you know, because the great darkness itself, and I've, I've talked about this, we haven't even seen who the, the villain is. Well, the villain's great darkness. Well, the great darkness isn't really sentient or it never had been previously. So what changed, what happened? Why could, why would it be sentient here and, and make the decisions making when in the 31st century, the Legion of superhero stories that granted were written 30 years ago, 40 years ago, almost, um, that they, they wouldn't matter, you know, or, or it would be different. Like, why would it, it wasn't sentient when it started, then it became sentient It attacks here. We have this dark, uh, dark crisis. And then all of a sudden it, it's not sentient anymore. So to me, this makes more sense. I was glad to actually see that saying, yeah, there's somebody manipulating it and there's somebody weaponizing it. So, you know, in, in a way it makes even more sense. The original great darkness saga that these followers of dark side would, you know, find out, Hey, even dark side himself was manipulated by the great darkness when it was weaponized. Let's weaponize it again in, in the name of, uh, of dark side. Obviously, you know, Joshua Williamson is a big DC fan. He's a big, uh, you know, student of DC history. So, you know, he's, he's pulling from, you know, past stories, uh, especially seminal stories like the great darkness saga. So I think that, that works on, on, on that level. That being said, I do agree with you. It, it's like, when are we going to get there? Um, you know, the, the moments here that matter the most, or maybe the moment that matters the most is, is seeing uh, those infinite earths come out of, um, out of the hand of, of Pry at the end. And yeah, what's so interesting is we talked about, Flashpoint Beyond event going on. And that's not even, I mean, it's so self-contained. I don't even know if you really call it an event, uh, but going on at the same time as the Star Crisis and what's the DC universe going to look like after this? What are they trying to do? And, you know, it is so interesting. And we'll talk about Flashpoint Beyond the latest issue in just a little bit. And maybe they're purposely having them come out in the same week because they're definitely tying into each other in some unexpected ways. So, you know, how much is Joshua Wimson collaborating with Jeff Johns and Jeremy Adams and uh, Tim Sheridan. I, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question, but it is interesting to see what can, can come of this, but I do agree with you. It does still feel like we're getting set up. Uh, we do get a really cool fight between the secret society of supervillains and the Legion of doom uh, in a Legion of doom ends up getting infected with the great uh, darkness. As you mentioned, uh, we get, some, you didn't mention this, but something's wrong with magic in the in the DCU. We see that that is a big thing, and there's rumors that the big event next year for DC is going to be all magic-related. Maybe they're going to try to reset the way magic works in the DC universe. I'm not really sure. Maybe that's an anticipation of a Justice League Dark movie finally getting off the ground. Again, I don't know. Um, but I am – like if I take this issue just in a vacuum and just look at the individual moments – in terms of you, you talked extensively about the the scene between Alan Scott and Nightwing. I thought that was very well done. I think Alan Scott doesn't get enough credit for what an interesting character and an important character he is. Uh, he's a character man. I would love to own an Alan Scott first appearance, but you know I don't happen to have a quarter of a million dollars laying <laughs> exactly. around. Exactly, a little expensive. Eh? <laughs> yeah, All American Comics sixteen uh, from nineteen forty. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, but he got, he is so important. And I feel like he has been, uh, underutilized. So like for a long, long time. Um, so it's great to see him here. And I, you know, the more Alan Scott we can get in my mind, the better, um, 
because I just think he's such a great character. And I, and I really enjoy the Earth 2 version of him as well. So that whole scene, that whole moment, seeing Alan Scott here, and hopefully uh, it feels like Joshua Williamson is a big fan of Alan Scott as well. And we'll see more of Alan Scott going forward. I certainly hope so. The battle I already mentioned between the, the Society and the Legion was great. Pariah, those you know moments of the infinite Earth flying out of his hand, another great moment the moment where we find out that magic has been messed up. The only moment that didn't work for me as well was the flash and Hal Jordan going to this, what looks to be a steampunk world. Yeah. Like almost a robotic, robotic looking Batman. Yeah. Apparently that's Batman's world or something with a world or other justice league. Yeah. Yeah, Why would Batman? Yeah. And they they mentioned, yeah, uh, this doesn't look like a world that we would think that um, Batman would like, like why would he create a world like, like this, you know, you go, Hal even says to Barry, cause you know, he mentioned to Barry earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your dream world was like, leave it to beaver. You yeah. go retro and Batman goes misery, but why is misery like a clock, like literally clockwork gears in, in the background. Yeah. And when uh, Batman shows up, he's throwing gears. And he, again, he looks like he's in some sort of steampunk, uh, costume, so yeah, not not sure why that would be Batman's go to if he could have his wish, um, but I suppose it'll be explained next issue. So yeah, there's a lot of great moments, but un- unfortunately, it is still set up, like you said, and the sum of the whole is not equal to how fun each individual part is, at least not yet. Yeah. So I, I just I'm wondering how the heck is this? Because if we're still in in setup, like I, I don't even necessarily know what the stakes are other than we've been told time and again that the stakes are higher than they've ever been, but we've only been told. We haven't been shown. It hasn't even really been explained. I mean, we're over halfway through and we, we just now get this hint that there's somebody that's weaponizing the great darkness. Like, how does this all come together in only three more issues? I, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect I suspect that it's it's not going to end in three issues, uh, which is going to lead to criticism because I, I, I can't see this wrapping up in three issues, to be honest. And yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's be like I said earlier, with the whole infinite frontier thing where that led into was it justice incarnate? And then that led into I can't even remember what. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it should be. Uh, uh, actually, we'll, we'll be getting that in, into another issue. But I just uh, one one of my uh, criticisms as well that that I was hoping it would work, but it hasn't. It hasn't landed for me. Is the World Without a Justice League series? It just feels like such a really tenuous connection. Apparently, all, all the Justice League—they're not really dead. They're on their own worlds, and they're whatever they're doing. Uh, and and the premise is wrong. These are not actually the dream worlds. What that that mean? You're not going to convince me that these were the exact these were the 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 dream come true for all these Justice League heroes, the worlds that they're on. It just doesn't fly. It, it's it it. There's flawed. They're they're flawed worlds. There, and I don't understand how that was is going to power up Pariah's machines. It's not been very clear. It hasn't been well done. The stories don't seem to be related or consistent with each other in a way that makes it feel cohesive. 
And uh, it's in that respect, it's uh, and especially since we're we're very ahead. And (laughs) I know the the Wonder Woman one is just oh my god, Um, it's it's just really really unfortunate. I don't I I know Joshua Williamson was saying that you know he's collaborating with the writers on those stories or he's aware of them, but uh, I just don't really see a lot of evidence of collaboration. It's just not working very well for me. It just but. I guess it is what it is, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I've i been enjoying this so far, and I'm giving Joshua Williamson all the rope he needs, uh, and I don't think he's going to hang himself. I, I enjoy this. I'm a sucker for a good crisis. I'm a DC lover. I love a good crisis, <laughs> and I've nitpicked every crisis there's ever been, so this one's no different. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this ends up. Yeah, do you remember what came after Justice League Incarnate? Because we had Infinite Frontier – series and then we had the justice league incarnate series so that ended in march was there uh, another mini series uh we no before? well we had uh yeah infinite frontier and justice league incarnate and okay just two then we had yeah, death just of two. justice league what, that's what right was that then we had death of justice league justice league 75 yeah and then we had then we had this uh yeah. dark crisis uh, for some reason i was thinking there was a third third miniseries but i guess not so yeah no. yeah um but one thing i will say is even if the story wasn't where I mean it's not working as good as it could be. I, th- I think that's what Rock and I are saying. Yeah, we're both fans of Joshua Williamson. He's definitely upped his game. He definitely loves the DC universe. He's definitely a student of it, much like Jeff Johns is, and he's mining from a lot of seminal stories, like I said before. Um, but there is, it does feel like there's some potential that's going by the wayside here. That being said, I cannot stress enough how amazing the Daniel Semper artwork is. And I don't just mean in line work, in composition, in the rendering that he's doing, because all that is top notch. But his storytelling has gotten to be incredible. And it wasn't like that ever was a weakness for him. And I've I've talked to him. I've said it on the podcast so many times when I really feel like he upped his game was that Justice League annual he did during Scott Snyder's run. And like I said, I've, I've talked to him about that. That's when I, when, you know, he had done stuff for DC for years previous, for like five years. I think he'd been doing things here and there, never a regular on the series, but fill in one shots, that sort of thing, an issue here or there, some covers. Um, but that issue made me like sit up and take notice of him. And what, I've told him that. And he, he said that he felt when he got that assignment, that was his big shot. You know, it was a high profile gig, Scott Snyder's Justice League. It was a big part of the story of what Scott was doing there. And he, he, just killed himself on that book. And it really, really showed. And from there, you know, he did the future state um, Aquaman story that Rocky and I both enjoyed and, and raved about. And I feel like that his storytelling in that, because it being so ethereal underwater, the color work that was done, he, the, the storytelling needed to be top notch, you know, just in terms of transitions from panel to panel, he leveled up, you know, then he got action comics and the story that Philip Kenny Johnson has been telling in Action Comics as we've covered it has been really epic in scope. So again, he needed Daniel needed to bring his A game and really concentrate on the storytelling and really exercise that muscle. And that has only continued in Dark Crisis, mm-hmm. uh, especially with such a large cast of characters. And just page after page, I'm nearly pulled out of the story because his line work is so fantastic. The choices that he makes in terms of how to lay the panels out uh, right from the start, when, uh, when Barry shows up and he's talking to Hal 
just a choice to put Barry running through those four different worlds. We see Superman, we see Wonder Woman, we see Green Arrow and Black Canary. I'm not sure who the the third panel is mm-hmm. um, with the tentacle face, um, but I love that Flash is running through, you know, running through there. And then when we have the the conversation on the next page between Mister Terrific and Cyborg and Donna Troy and uh, and Wildcat, like the background that's there, the line work, the way everybody's standing, their body language. Um, having that framed by scenes of what the heroes are doing in the world right now with all these disasters that are going on, the way he backlights uh, the, the choice to backlight Nightwing when Alan Scott is standing behind him with his ring glowing. It's, you know, the, and again, a lot, a lot of this goes with, to the color work as well, which is done really, really well um, by Alejandro Sanchez, who Daniel works with a lot. Uh, but, you know, the, that green glow of the ring, illuminating uh, Garth as he lays there in bed, wrapped in bandages, illuminating Alan Scott's face, illuminating Nightwing's face. It's just, it's so well done. It's so beautiful to look at. And then, okay, hey, these are all great expositional moments that could become boring in the hands of a lesser artist. He's keeping it interesting for us, but that doesn't mean we don't get action. No, we have that incredible battle between the Legion of Doom and the society. And that double page spread, that has panels inset along the bottom. Like I can't name most of those characters and they look a little <laughs> different than they normally would. Even Prometheus cause and, and uh, Deathstroke, they've got the chains around them. Um, uh, particularly the woman on the left, like we, I see Dr. Foster is there, but the woman on the left with the heart glasses, do you know who that is? I, I, I don't actually, pistols? I don't, yeah. I, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is either, but my point is like all of these characters, regardless of like I can recognize all of them or not, they all look badass. Even somebody as silly as Typhoon, you know, he yeah. uh, he's you know he's flying. We see, um, uh, God, he was just in the Aquaman series. Uh, he's dressed in that deep sea. I can't remember, but he's uh, he's such a, a Z-list villain, and we Devil see him Ray there. or something or what. No, it's not Devil. It, the guy that wore, wore the deep sea suit, he's right there next to Prometheus. Uh, I cannot for the life of me oh. remember his name. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I can't. But he, that guy's, yeah, that guy's such a joke villain, but even he yeah. looks formidable here. Um, yeah. And that's the power of Daniel Samper. Like, he's just doing such a fantastic job seeing uh, Pariah's face as the, the great darkness that he's weaponizing is corrupting him. I mean, it all, it all works. Walking the, the hero's following Alan Scott down the stairs again, that green glow of the ring as they descend um, to sort of the magical uh, headquarters of the justice league dark. Like it just choice after choice by Daniel. And and again, I give some credit to Joshua Williamson as well, because he's probably, you know, telling or at least hinting toward Daniel Samper. Hey, this is, this is what I'm thinking for this panel. Um, But I'm sure Daniel has plenty of uh, freedom to, to illustrate as he would like, but I'm just I'm so impressed by Daniel Semper, and I, I've I've said we've said especially when we're talking about that um, that Future State Aquaman series that hey this this is a superstar in the making he, this is a super, this is superstar art like he's no longer a superstar in making he's a superstar like this art is incredible you know when you think about DC events over the past ten or fifteen twenty years and incredible art obviously you go back further than that you think George Perez. Um, but you come forward a little bit and it's, you know, Ivan Reis, who you think of, who is just synonymous with that DC style. When I'm going to think of events in the past few years, I'm, I'm going to think of this. I'm going to think of this style. I'm going to think of this line work. I'm going to think of Daniel Semper because his art, like I can't say enough about how incredible it is. Um, 
it's just so good. It's what, and this is the best issue he's done yet. And it's what really made me love this is, does the story have some holes and is, is it, like I said, possibly wasting some potential? Yes. But uh, the art more than makes up for it in my mind. So absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And just a quick point, uh, you know, at one point, uh, Mr. Terrific says in this issue that the idea of the omniverse was false and that it, it created an imbalance in our multiverse. And so the idea of the omniverse is false. I, I can't help but sort of chuckle when I read that with both uh, irony and a little bit of frustration because, you know, all the talk of the DC omniverse and everything matters and everything else. And now the idea, I mean, it's, it's word for word. That's what he says. The idea of the omniverse is false. Really? So I love that. <laughs> I love that. that. That put a big smile on my face when I read that at the beginning. It's like, I get it. I've talked before about Scott Snyder and, and how his ideas are great, but there's not always enough real estate on the page. I talked ex- extensively about that both during death metal and, or dark nights of uh, yeah, dark nights and dark nights, death metal um, that I just think the ideas were too big. They weren't yeah. able to be fleshed out in, in the real estate they had. And again, they weren't line wide events. So as soon as I read that and I'm like, okay, they're trying to pull back on that idea. You know, the way Scott always yeah. described it. If you saw him at a show or went to one of his panels, this idea of the DC universe as a fishbowl and you dump that fishbowl back into the, in, you take that fishbowl and you dump it in the ocean. You know, it's a much bigger world. Yeah. It, it's too big. It's too big in my mind. That's too much. That that's you got to put some some constraints on it to make things make sense, especially continuity wise. So I never really like as much as I'm a fan of Scott Snyder. I never really liked that idea. And so they're walking that back. Like when I saw that, I was like, yes. And uh, we'll get to more of it. Uh, Flashpoint Beyond t- talks something similar uh, yeah. in, in this week as well. So I, I love that idea. Yeah. Hey, well, it, and, and Mr. Terrific. Omniverse. Was a lie? Hey, I love it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Mr. Terrific also says, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the smart thing here is to hope for the best. <laughs> I agree with you, Mr. Terrific. We are all hoping for the best with this series. And, uh, you know, we're all, we're certainly going to stick with it. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it, it, it leads us. Yeah. The, I mean, the, this, if they're rolling back the idea of the omniverse, and again, we'll talk to, about it more when we get to Flashpoint Beyond, because they might be, it might be this idea of, of, it's not an omniverse. It's back to being a multiverse, but it's not 52 worlds as we see at the end of this issue. It's back to infinite worlds. That does, that sort of is in the middle of what, what Scott Snyder was trying to do and what we've had ever since Flashpoint Beyond or yeah. New 52, if you want, with the, establishing the 52 worlds. It's kind of a nice middle ground, but what it does, what it does allow for is, yeah, all the stories can count but only in their own particular worlds. So it's less of a have your cake and eat it too. And it's less of the everything matters because as we both have said, if everything matters and nothing matters because everything can be erased and contradicted and why should we be investing our time? So yeah. I like, I like that when I read that line, I was like, yes, the omniverse, I never liked that idea. Get rid of it, throw it away. I don't even like the idea of there being a dark multiverse. Yeah. I would be happy if that went away as well. And if they took, if I it agree. took the Batman, if it took the Batman that laughs with it forever, that would be even better. I know that's not going to happen because he's a moneymaker for DC, but God, what a horrible character. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, let's move on. Multiversity team justice. Number four written by Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen art by Marco Faia colors by Enrica, Aaron and Giolini letters by Carlos M. Manguel will to survive for this particular issue. 
uh, number four of six, I think this is. What do you think? Uh, it's it's all right. I'm not. I have not. Uh, I'm not really like really on board with the story, if I'm brutally honest. But uh, it, the story has gotten better. It's it's gotten better. It's uh, uh, it's finally we're actually you know we're in issue four and we're actually knee deep in the action. Uh, this I guess what is it? Troy. His name's Troy. <laughs> Why don't they just call him Don Troy? But no, his name's Troy. Uh, uh. You know, they, they go, they rescue, Troy gets captured by the Sinestra and the, the rest of the, the Green Lanterns, which are, I guess, evil. And, um, uh, a lot of, uh, it's called Wilter, like I said, it's called Wilter Survive. I'm not even sure what that's a reference to, if that's a reference to the Green Lanterns or, 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 or what. But, uh, obviously it, uh, it, what, what, what uh, de- writers Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen do here is the good thing is that in this issue, Teen Justice come together as a team. There's, there's, they do, cr- there's a lot of teamwork and they end up, uh, while they end up, I mean, this is still a buildup. They end up getting defeated in some respects, but they do come together as a team and they fight for each other. They defend each other. Um, I would have, uh, um, I still would like to see more of the members of the of the actual Justice Guild in this comic because I know the Justice Guild uh, everything's gender swapped. This is Earth Eleven. I would have. I know this is a Teen Justice comic. I know that, but I would like to see the Justice Guild. I would actually. I'm more interested in the Justice Guild than in the Teen Justice. But I would if I if uh, I think that because Teen Justice are are the the children in large part, sort of like the the, the legacy characters of the Justice Guild on Earth Eleven. I would like to see the Justice Guild have more of uh, come in more into play here because this is a this is a Teen Justice that they fight and they bicker a lot and to the point where it got a little annoying maybe in different scenes in the first three issues but they're they're coming into their own here and they're they're finally putting aside their arguing and they when the push comes to shove they manage to to pull through. Um, I'm not I'm uh, uh, I'm not entirely clear what's exactly what's at stake or what's going on if i'm brutally honest because i i it's been it feels like it's been a long time since the the, the last issue uh but there's some there's some interesting characters here i i like what they did with the green lantern core it's a, it's it's a little bit different um but um i don't really have didn't really didn't really captivate me i uh I have to say about with DC in general, between Teen Titans Academy and Teen Justice, uh, this is definitely a more, this is far better than Teen Titans Academy ever was. Uh, at least we're getting some good, we're, we're getting some teenage action here for, for these heroes. I, um, uh, frankly, I wish I, I wanted it to be mainstream DC universe and, uh, this, this Earth 11 for these characters that are, I mean, Danny Lauren, Ivan Korn doing, they're doing a, a decent job telling this story. It's just I'm not I don't I'm not really pulled in by the characters. I just they I, I I'm just not pulled in. I'm not really I'm not really in, I don't feel invested in the story. And maybe that's just maybe that's just me. But I I don't really feel that I in four issues we've we've gotten a there's been a lot of story crammed into four issues here and. To Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore's credit, they've they've crammed in a lot of character work with a lot of dialogue, a lot of character work. Uh, maybe it's just because none of these characters really resonate with me. 
but I, I can't fault them for not doing some character work because they have. There, there is character work to be had here. I, I just don't really. Um, it, none of the characters really have have really grabbed me yet, and maybe that's just going to take some time. And the fact that whenever I hear a reference of the Justice Guild, I want to see the Justice Guild play a role here because I think that was that I remember that the, there was that initially when we fir- were first introduced to the Teen Justice Guild, it was in a in a backup story. To some, I can't remember, to some DC one-shot. And the Justice Guild was actually in it. And the interplay between the Justice Guild and the Teen Justice, I actually enjoyed that the most. I wish they'd... I'd, I'd like to see that myself. Uh, but uh, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Um, there's been character work, but it is a very... Uh, I don't want to say convoluted story, but it, it, it's it's an action-packed story with a lot of moving parts multiple uh, plot threads that, you know, have come together. But being that I don't know these characters and not invested in any of them, I I do find it a little harder to to follow. And maybe that's on me. Maybe like you said, I just need to go back and reread it once it's all said and done. Um, This is, I, I, I I enjoyed this issue more than any previous issue. I thought it was done really, really well. Uh, It is starting to come together. And as much as they, Bicker, like you said, um, which is an interesting choice for characters that aren't that well known. Um, but I suppose it, it does come across as somewhat realistic ba- based on the fact that they're teenagers. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of story crammed in here. And being that I'm not familiar with the characters, I don't, I'm, I'm not invested that, you know, it's the perfect way that, that you put it. So I'm not pulled in. Um, so maybe, I, you know, I'm, I'm, sort of lacking that relatable point to really have the story grab me. So yeah, it's, it definitely has improved and it feels like it's all going to come together in the end. And it's maybe one of those situations where it's going to read better as a whole, as opposed to this, you know, uh, individual monthly issues. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have new champion of Shazam. This is chapter number two written by Josie Campbell. Art is by Evan Doc Shaner, lettering by Becca Carey, and what can I say? I, I, I love this. I do miss overall stories of the Shazam family and stories of Billy Batson, um, but if only one of them gets to have powers, I think Mary is an excellent choice just because she's such a, a complicated character, and I know that people might push back on that a little and say, no, she's just like kind of a, a smarty pants, uh a goody two shoes, if you will, somebody you would expect to be the, you know, the hall monitor. And yeah, she's had some of those character traits in the past, but that's what makes this work, right? You put somebody like that who's, you know, confident and thinks they have all the answers. And all of a sudden you, you throw them in the deep end where they're in over their head. They don't have their brothers and adoptive brothers and sisters to back them up like they've had in the past. And all of a sudden you have a really big conflict for, for Mary where she doesn't know what she's going to do. She doesn't, she realizes she doesn't have it all figured out and it's really challenging for her. On top of that, you get Evan Doc Shaner, who in my mind is the best person to ever draw any sort of Shazam or Shazam family story because of sort of the inherent innocence that comes with his uh, style of art, which really harkens back to the, the actual faucet days of, uh, of, Shazam or Captain Marvel back when CC Beck used to draw it. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that uh, Doc Shaner's art looks like CC Beck. It's, it's much more modern uh, with lighter line weights and 
has much more of a modern sensibility, but there is also this cleanliness to his line work that really works for a, a Shazam type story. So this is sort of the, the best mixing of a modern aesthetic with sort of classic superhero stories. And the other thing that's great about what Josie Campbell is giving us is this is a wonderful story for, you know, maybe ages eight to 12 to introduce them to something in the DC comics universe, because it's relatively self-contained. Um, there's not, it, there's not a lot of violence. It's certainly cartoon cartoonish violence. Um, and it, again, it has that feeling of, of innocence and wonder and kind of classic superhero storytelling. So um, and I can't say enough about beyond the, the aesthetic that Doc Shaner uses his storytelling, his line work, um, the textures in his art, the comedic looks on the faces or even the comedic moments in the fight when uh, Mary's fighting this giant, I don't know, like flying crocodile type monster and waxer with his tail. Uh, this is just a lot of fun. Um, and, and Josie Campbell's story has some mystery and some intrigue and uh, some emotion. And yeah, this is just working for me on all cylinders. Um, I think that, uh, it, it has surpassed my expectations. I mean, I knew when Doc Shaner on a Mary Shazam book, a Mary Marvel book, I was in, um, but I, I didn't know necessarily what to expect, but this has, this, the story itself, uh, itself, what Josie Campbell has done is, has really impressed me. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I echo your sentiment. I just want to uh, emphasize, and I, I don't think I don't think you were trying to suggest. In fact, I know you weren't trying to suggest that this is uh, just for eight to ten year olds. Uh, no, but be, uh, because it's certainly it's it's this is perfect. This is actually this is the perfect comic because this is uh, this this is written for adults that children can enjoy, which is, which is, I say, that's the perfect superhero comic that you should, it should be written for adults that children can read and want to read and enjoy because this is great storytelling. This is great art. And there, there's a lot of really great character work here. I mean, Mary, Mary Marvel. I mean, look, Shazam's been a mess. I mean, let's face it coming out of future state. I mean, Shazam was just very poorly handled and it was just a mess trying to make sense of that. And, all, all people need to know is that the power of Shazam, thank God, get it away from Billy. If you don't know how to rate Billy, fine, give it to Mary. Give the power of Shazam to Mary Marvel. That's what Billy Batson did, gave the power of Shazam to Mary. And they, they, what underscores the character moments here between Mary and the other members of the Marvel family, you know, Darla, Eugene, Pedro, and Freddie, is that they, uh, they, there's not enough power of Shazam to go around. Uh, it's only, Mary Marvel has it all and, and she, she, it seems to be focused in her. She can't share it. And that creates some tension with Darla and Eugene and Pedro. And, and, and we, we haven't, I don't think we've seen Freddie yet, but it's, it's, it's clear that there's, there's, uh, there's some inter, there's probably some hurt feelings there because they don't, you know, Mary doesn't know what's going on with the powers and what, you know, because I mean, I mean, and again, you know, Billy just sort of took off and is speaking through 
a rabbit, the actual bunny talking base, you know, sends a bunny to talk to Mary to say, by the way, you got the powers of Shazam. I mean, there's some ludicrous sort of plot points in that, but, but they're fun and, and it works. It actually works. And it's kind of the stuff that you would expect. And like you said, it sort of harkens back to the silver age nonsense, but it, it possesses enough verisimilitude that it pulls the reader in and uh and it's all it's helped out all the more by by doc shaner's amazing art that like you said just captures the innocence of mary marvel and darla and and her character moments and it it really does work well and in particular at the end uh you know she she continues to go to university and of course she gets sidestepped because there's a there's a kind of a crocodile creature that's loose well this crocodile creature must be tied to these three unknown or these three odd looking, uh, almost like they look like shadow characters that, that Mary has a hard time defeating because they, they have like almost electrical powers that they connect like a conduit. And so whenever she tries to use her Captain Marvel or her lightning powers, they can u- utilize, they can create a, I guess, a conduit and sort of use her own powers against her. It's a little unclear what their power set is, but it's, uh, they have an opportunity, these three sort of, these three literally dark shadow looking characters that have lightning powers of their own. They have a pot, they have the, at, at one point near the end, they have the ability to, incapacitate Mary Marvel, but they choose not to. So I'm not even clear what I, you know, I like that. Are they bad guys? Are they good guys? What's their agenda? We don't know. Again, it's a great way to end the comic. It's a great way, you know, great character moments leading to like, hey, who are these three people? What's going on? Mary herself. I, we feel, we, the readers feel like Mary Marvel, Mary Marvel does here, Mary Bromfield, because we're just as much in the dark as Mary is. And that's a, that's a hard thing to pull off for some writers, but they've managed to do it because we're just as much in the dark as Mary is because we're wondering, Billy, why did you give her the Shazam powers? What's going on? So we got the same questions Mary does. You know, who are these three that showed up at the end? So just, uh, you know, just very well done. And we're, you know, sadly, you know what? This is too, I want this to go beyond. I already know I want this to be longer than four issues. Because this is better than most of what I'm reading. At, well, at least it's better than 50, 60% of what I'm reading at DC right now in terms of just sheer entertainment. And again, dare I say, there's that word again, hope. I mean, this is just literally filled with it. And uh, it's just, it's a really good read. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, and again, to Rocky's point, definitely, you know, I, I certainly didn't mean that it was only for eight to 12 year olds or whatever, because there are some sophisticated ideas here. But my point is it's a very good gateway comic. Hook them while they're young, something you can share with your kids. Um, yeah. Not, not worry about, you know, any kind of mature themes that, that don't work uh, on that level. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nubia queen of the Amazons. This is issue number four of four. For whatever reason, our preview copy doesn't have the credits inside, but I think I, no, uh, written by Stephanie Williams. We know that Malitha Martinez does pencils. We have two people on inks, Mark Morales and John Livesey. And then, uh, Alex Guillermas does the color work and Becca Carey is on letters. So, um, I guess save the best for last. This was the best issue of this series. Um, it felt like action packed and kind of what the series should have been all along. It's very much been a talking head series up to this point sort of a political 
series, um, really giving us the background of who Queen Nubia was before she became Queen Nubia. Uh, and it does plant some seeds uh, going forward, even though she's forced to kill her, uh, her former ally, I guess, or tribe member, Zilla. I don't know exactly what to call her. Um, but they, they, there is a, a climactic battle between Nubia and, and Zilla. Um, and, and obviously Zilla knew Nubia, you know, previously Princess Zahava, um, and before she died and came to the Well of Souls. Um, but it appears that Hera, and I'm not sure who the other god is because it's not even named, and that, that did bother me. That is a nitpick. Um, if you're not reading the regular Wonder Woman title, you're like, wait, who, who are these people? Uh, what, what's going on with the gods? Um, but it looks like they're going to resurrect Zilla and use her in, in some way. And uh, it's to be continued in the pages of Wonder Woman, which I sort of feel like it should be um, because it is so t- you know tied in with who Wonder Woman is and, and the Amazon. So um, again, I, I just wish that we'd gotten this level of action throughout because I think it's been so political and such a talking head series that it, it sort of lost some of its momentum. So it's in, in, a, in a way, uh, it's not so different from a lot of what Rocky and I have felt about the Wonder Woman corner of the DC universe lately, which is a little bit of potential wasted. Um, and I can sort of sum it up, even though I did enjoy this issue, uh, I can sort of sum it up very easily in that early on in the issue, uh, Nubia is thinking back to when she went to the God Summit much like Zilla is doing and was looking for power. Uh, you know, she, Nubia even acknowledged she's being sort of hypocritical and we see Nubia there. This is when she originally got the, the amulet when she's still princess Zahava and the God tests her and, and tests her by having her bitten by a snake. But it's this inset panel. It's the final panel on a uh, lower right panel on a page and she gets bit, Right. We don't even see the bite take place. All we get is a hiss. I, I noticed and, that too, yeah. And what we see of Nubia is from the waist up. And then on the next page, or the next, yeah, I guess the next page, the next panel, we see her calf there and it's got a couple bite marks. Um, but even that is not really clear. Like I had to look, like I knew, obviously with the hiss, you're like, okay, she got bit by something. But I had to wait, I was like, wait, am I supposed to see a snake in this panel? I don't even see a snake. It, you know, the, the, words say the venom now coursing through your veins. And I, Oh, th- there's the two holes. There's where she got bit. Like, again, it's just, I, I don't know exactly why Aletha Martinez would, would make that choice. Maybe she was directed by Stephanie Williams, but it, it's, it's almost like it's trying to be a little too clever. Um, and it's, it's missing the forest for the trees in a way. So in, in my mind, that little sequence, those two panels kind of sum up as much as I enjoyed this, as much as it was a satisfying conclusion, this whole entire series could have been better if it wasn't trying so hard, um, just you have an interesting character. You've done good character work on, uh, on her in the past. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just, you know, kind of trust yourself and, you know, tell a good story. Um, and we got the bones of a good story here. And again, this is the, the best of the series, but now it's over and now it's going to fold into Wonder Woman, which again, I think is a good thing, but, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I think overall the series could have been a lot better. So what are your thoughts, Rock? Yeah, I, well, like, I, this is, um, th- this is better than the first, th- this, as a story, this worked, it ended on a higher note than, 
the first Nubia series did. The, uh, and um, I still got some criticisms here, but I, I will say that, that you know, that we we have more of an origin for Nubia. I, um, you know, she she was this princess thousands of years ago in Madagascar, and she. Apparently in the past, this goddess Semet or Sekmet or however you say it gave her, that's where she ended up with this amulet and the amulet got separated. And then this Zila character, uh, ends up putting the amulet together and is very powerful now. And Zila is now fights Nubia in this issue. And, um, I'm, I was a little surprised. I, I'm, I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm a little confused. I thought Zila would be more powerful because she was bragging about, if she has the amulet, she's going to have all this power and she's not that powerful. <laughs> I don't really know what the big deal was with this amulet. Okay. So she's not particularly powerful and she's, and, and then Nubia kills her. And am I, am I, should I be surprised by that? I mean, look, Wonder Woman killed Maxwell Lord, snapped his neck, but that was a big event. Now Nubia I guess Nubia likes to has no problem using lethal force. I'm I'm actually openly wondering why did Nubia feel the need to kill Z- Zilla? Was it necessary? I don't think it was necessary, but but I get it. Oh, okay, I, I get it. I mean, frankly, that's a very Amazonian thing to do. Amazons ought to kill more, to be blunt, if they're actually true to their code. To be honest, that with the whole peaceful warrior thing, I like that she killed. Uh, Zila, to be honest, uh, I find it a little interesting that if Zila's dead, you know, she, now she's resurrected, presumably resurrected by Hera and this other uh, black goddess who is, as you said, unidentified. A huge misstep, not identifying who that other god goddess is. Uh, if presumably, it's somebody who's just as duplic- duplicitous and engaging in machinations as Hera is, but. Like I said, the bare bones of a story, they're here. And what I like about it is that there's a, there's potential stuff to story plot elements here to build upon. We still don't know a lot about the amulet. We still don't know. I think that the Zilla character can be infinitely more interesting because ultimately she was, there was far too much talking, far too much dialogue there. This could have been a much shorter, this could have been done in two issues instead of four. Um, but you know, again, we're getting, you know, we, we got something here. We got something here. And I actually, I, I'm actually curious to see where this is, you know, when, when Zila comes back and she's resurrected, Hera is clearly up to something. And my, I guess my only concern is that I, <laughs> I just feel things still feel so incomplete and, and they don't feel particularly cohesive between all the Wonder Woman titles Individually, I find that they're all messy. And Nubia, I will say to Stephanie Williams, while I can be critical of it, I actually think this Nubia is actually probably the most coherent story out of all of them between Wonder Woman and all the other, and and the Artemis one shot and wanted, and it, that's been a mess in the trial of the Amazons. Uh, so Stephanie Williams here has actually, I, I like the fact that she sort of reeled it in here, and we got we got we got a you know, I guess a decent story out of it. I'd like to see where it goes though. And, and I guess we'll, uh, we'll, I guess we're going to have to continue to read Wonder Woman to figure out uh, what's going to happen with this resurrected Zila now and this new black goddess working with Hera. Yeah, I don't disagree. Um, And again, you know, much like Yara Flora, just, it's a little bit of potential wasted. So 
Yeah. Uh, okay, up next, we teased it. Now it's here, Flashpoint Beyond, issue number four. Uh, such a, a fantastic series. Uh, written by Jeff Johns, Tim Sheridan, and Jeremy Adams. Zermanico and Mikel Yanin are the artists. Ramula Fajardo Jr. and Jordi Belair do the colors. Rob Lee on letters. And, uh, yeah, I just I thought this was so interesting, the way it kicks off. Also with Mr. Terrific, you know, talking about the Omniverse. And the fact that it really doesn't exist the way that we're, th- you know, that we were told it was. The omniverse is a lie. Uh, so, what were your thoughts? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the first thing is uh, because this is the Flashpoint universe. The big mystery is how does this Flashpoint universe still exist? We we, we don't really get answers to that yet. Although uh, presumably at some point we will. But I, I I do find one of the things that I found very very different uh, between this and if I'm comparing this to Dark Crisis number four is what stood out to me anyway is the description of the great darkness because the great darkness is described here by, I mean, uh, this starts off with uh, a Dr. Baxter talking to Mr. Terrific and they're talking about the the omniverse and the, the multiverse and, and the great darkness is described here as an ancient living corruption that infects and controls sentient life. And they're having a conversation as as if the dark crisis already happened, that this dark crisis already happened, which is interesting. Yeah. If you look at the top top right there, it says page two days after the dark crisis. So this this actually, one thing we've wondered about actively wondered about is how they relate to each other. Yeah. Apparently dark crisis ends before uh, Flashpoint Beyond. Yeah, it's really weird. Now, who knows? I mean, with Jeff Johns, I mean, with all the time travel shenanigans and space time, I mean, maybe this is this is some kind of misdirection. But I don't, I don't think Jeff Johns would do that. He's very, very deliberate, Johns, when he says something. So he's very intentionally setting the the, the ending of Flashpoint Beyond. This, this, where we are, like you said, two days after the ending of Dark Crisis. So that's really interesting. But it's also interesting that, that the Great Darkness is described as something, it's an ancient living corruption. So it's a lot more than a mere shadow or just like a darkness that, that was suggested in, uh, in Dark Crisis number four that we just finished reviewing. So, and again, maybe I'm making too much of that, but in any event, clearly, Somebody was controlling is corrupting the at a minimum corrupting and utilizing the the great darkness and uh, but in any event we get some interesting uh, conversations here which I don't even know if there must be a reason why we're you know the conversation with Mister Terrific and this Doctor Baxter and she's she's one of the smartest women on in the Flashpoint universe Mister Terrific is the third smartest man and they talk about the Mandela effect. And they, the Mandela effect being the effect that people who go through a crisis, when they still remember remnants of their past after every crisis, that's considered a Mandela effect. There's, there's, they talk a little bit about the, the universes and the Rip Hunter and the, and they have, they show Dr. Manhattan and it shows, talks about the metaverse. And so there's little hints of everything. And then lo and behold, it shows in our universe, Bruce Wayne meets up with Raza Gull. And, Razagal is supposed to be dead. So apparently two days after the dark crisis ends, Razagal is alive again. So Razagal, we believe, is supposed to be dead, but I guess he's, he's alive. And he, Razagal tells Batman that you can still save your father, Thomas. You can still save him. And okay, well, that's interesting. 
And so, but how does the Flashpoint universe still exist? And uh, how does this deal with the snow globe? And because at the end of this, the uh, Rip Hunter shows up, the Time Hunter, and uh, one of the Time Masters, Rip Hunter shows up and sort of warns, you know, Bruce Wayne, you know, don't get involved in this, stay away, don't try to rescue your dad, or at least that's what I'm I'm guessing that's what he's he's basically telling him. Meanwhile. <coughs> Well, well, Thomas Wayne is trying to piece all this stuff together. Thomas Wayne is is ignoring the Penguin. His his trusty butler, the Penguin, is trying to tell him to take Dex to to go and rescue Dexter. But uh, Dexter and 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 the Penguin's trying to tell him about about uh, you know uh, you know your your son is uh, went to Arkham Asylum and and uh, you know all this happened. You you got to go and rescue him, but. You know, Thomas Wayne is still of the mindset that, look, I don't have to do anything because nothing matters. Nothing matters. I, I, we got to get rid of this multi. We got to get rid of this Flashpoint universe so that uh, basically our, our son, because this, we don't exist. Nothing matters. But he ends up confronting Martha, who is, of course, his wife, Martha, is the Joker. And Martha, Martha discovered uh, the, the, discovered what was the, the truth and the secrets of the Flashpoint universe the flashpoint paradox she discovered it because her one of her cellmates or one of her uh, fellow inmates at arkham asylum was the psycho pirate and so after psycho pirate filled martha in on the 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 truth of the flashpoint universe and what what the importance of it happening and not happening and not existing and then psycho pirate of course she ends up killing him and what have you so we we understand that that's why Martha now knows, but now Martha has this secret of she wants to bring her son back. She wants to take Thomas with her and go back in time and to and to have it so that their son Bruce lives and that they die. At least that's what she's saying. And and uh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, how is this all going to resolve itself? I mean, she's she's the murderer of, of she's the clockwork killer. Okay, so. What I thought was going to be a lot more complex is actually just kind of a glorified Martha Wayne Joker story, at least. But yet we're going to have what's going to the the wrinkle here is going to be Bruce Wayne trying to rescue his father Thomas Wayne, and then actually confronting his mother, who's the Joker in the Flashpoint universe. That we're heading for a uh, what is I'm sure is going to be a very interesting collision between all these characters. And how is it going to resolve? I, I don't really know, but it's very interesting that this takes place two days after the end of Dark Crisis because will Flashpoint Batman end up back in our universe along with Martha, the Joker, M Martha Wayne? Uh, will the Flashpoint universe continue to exist? Uh, it, it's hard to say because if this is two days after the Dark Crisis and the Dark Crisis is over, well, this Flashpoint universe still exists. So if the Dark Crisis is over, well, then – it's definitely going to continue to exist. So I'm a, I got a lot of questions. I'm, uh, I'm kind of confused, but all in a good way. I love the, 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 I love, I love the art here. The art was really good. I love, uh, I love Martha Wayne. I mean, the, the characterization is kind of predictable. Uh, every time we get a, every time it goes back to Bruce Wayne in, in, in our universe, we always get the Mikel Jannon, Mikel Jannon's art and, so clearly now it's it's great to see the time master the time master Rip Hunter step up to the plate, uh, wanting to uh, prevent Batman from doing whatever Batman feels he needs to do, and so lots of questions. Uh, but I'm 
I got so many theories going through my head, but I just, I'm looking forward. Hopefully people are listening. If you have any theories, uh, feel free to share them uh, on, on the comments section, those watching on YouTube. And uh, so what do you think of this? Yeah, it definitely, again, feels like they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. The Omniverse doesn't exist. It's a, it's an infinite multiverse. It feels like that's what we're headed toward um, and how that could all work with continuity. Uh, I don't know. Can we just make uh, Joshua Williamson editor-in-chief or continuity guy? Um, you know, he doesn't need to write everything, but, you know, uh, it would be nice. It would be nice if we could get back to that point. Um, with some tighter continuity. Uh, one of the things I found interesting is that globe that's been such a big part of the story apparently contains the Flashpoint um, universe. You know, you didn't mention that, but we see oh, when right. when yeah. Martha Wayne kisses the globe, you know, we see it on the other side um, that, you know, Bruce and the, the actual DC universe sees. The, so who, who put the Flashpoint universe in that globe? It was at the time Hunter's. Is it somebody else manipulating things? We don't know. Uh, but yeah, so many questions. You know, what's going to happen? Thomas Wayne Batman is such an interesting character and a, and a popular character. Wasn't surprised to see him come back in Tom King's run of Batman. Wasn't surprised to hear about Flashpoint Beyond and, you know, a series focused on him. So would be a little surprised if they really do get rid of him and get rid of the Flashpoint Universe. Like I could see them destroying the Flashpoint universe. Maybe they'll make it part of the multiverse. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, you make a good point about this being a universe that's not supposed to exist. So does that mean that all those things that Mr. Terrific was saying about the Omniverse when he's on that program in, a, in the Flashpoint universe aren't actually true? They're true for the Flashpoint universe, but not for our own universe. So yeah, there's still plenty of questions to be answered, but it does. I get the feeling. I get the tone that Joshua Williamson and Jeff Johns are both working toward rolling back what, what Scott did. I think DC just realized it wasn't a good idea to, to make things that wide open. You know, this whole idea of everything matters, it just, it hasn't worked. I mean, let's just be honest. So, um, but fantastic artwork by Zermanico and Mikhail Yanin. Uh, absolutely, absolutely love it. And yeah, no surprise that, uh, Raz al Ghul is back. You know, he even says himself, yeah, my return, you, you know, you're not surprised. Nobody's surprised. Um, does this mean that after the flashpoint or after a dark crisis, that it is somewhat of a reset of the timeline? I guess we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see. So, yeah. uh, okay. Up next, we have poison Ivy number four. This is written by, uh, G Willow Wilson. This is issue four of six. Uh, the art is by Marcio Takara. Arif Prianto does the colors. The letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. Um, Rocky and I both talked about when we got the first issue of this series and certainly into the second was just how brutal Poison Ivy was. And we speculated on whether she was returning to her, her villainous roots. She's killing people left and right. How do you reconcile that with her, you know, persona with in this relationship with Harley Quinn? And to her credit, uh, G. Willow Wilson has done a good job of, of making that a very meta part of this series to the point that Poison Ivy, Pamela Isley, is asking herself those same questions. She wants to defend the planet. She sees all the harm that, that humans are doing. She herself is dying, and she's she wants to save the planet. She wants to you know reduce the number of humans on the planet so that the planet, the natural uh, or nature world – 
uh, the ecosystem of nature on planet Earth can heal itself. And she sees this as her legacy. If she wasn't dying, maybe she wouldn't be headed down this path. But that being said, even though she's doing this, even though she knows she's dying and, and wants to leave this lasting legacy, she's still questioning her own decisions. She's asking those same questions we were asking. Should she be killing people? Should she be doing this? Isn't this a betrayal of Harley and, and all that sort of thing? And this is a the, what happens in this issue when she um, – we see her. She goes to work at like an Amazon-type place like, and she's infecting the packages with spores because she knows that the packages get shipped all over the world. And the boss that works there sexually harasses his employees and he's pretty much just a creep. And so she takes she takes him out. She gives him his just desserts. And then one of the women that works at the plant, uh, they have a, a sexual and intimate sexual encounter and she's poison ivy sort of overwhelmed with the moment. But even then she feels some guilt about what she's doing, like I said, to uh, other humans, but also what she's doing, you know, quote unquote, cheating on Harley. Um, she never stops loving Harley. And, and again, all the same questions that we would be asking or that we would thoughts we would be thinking, Pamela Poison Ivy is thinking herself. So it's a very meta issue and it, it's, it's perfect characterization in my mind. So um, I'm still not a huge fan of the Takara art. I think it's just a little messy. It sort of works for the fungal stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want, you know, like a Jim Lee house style of art on this either. I think you can find a, a happy medium. Um, but the other part of it is that the color work tends to be a little darker from Arif Prianto. Um, and I think the reason that he's going for a little bit of a darker, almost a muted palette is because of the Takara line work. And I just, I would appreciate a brighter um, color palette just because everything seems to have this grayish filter uh, over it. Um, and I, again, I understand why, because this, this almost comes across at times as like this body horror book whenever we see poison ivy sort of uh, plant plant out, if you will, um, with the fungal infection and what have you. Um, but again, just not my favorite style of art. But uh, character-wise, I can't I can't fault it at all. And it like I, I know she doesn't do interiors, but if you look at the Jenny Frizen cover for this issue, which is absolutely beautiful, like something more along the lines of that on the interiors, I think I would enjoy a lot more. I mean, that's just a beautiful cover. So it's anyway, what, what are your thoughts on this one? I, I thought it was uh, – story-wise, it, it was it was okay. It was okay. I would have liked – I thought it was uh, – again, maybe it's I, – I thought it was really um, – you know, the, the whole – I mean, every single issue, we've had an evil man. And uh, <laughs> now we got one who sexually harasses her. And uh, of course, you know, he, he dies horribly and uh, – he, you know, she makes sure he dies horribly, and uh, and of course everyone's glad. I guess we're supposed to be glad that she murders another person, uh, and uh, and then decides to have sex afterwards after killing this man. Who, uh, of course, he's scum because he sexually harasses people in in the workplace, and he's a he's a real he, he's a real piece of work. Um, but it's 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 kind of uh, it's interesting because he's still. Uh, I mean, and it's. So on the one hand, it's kind of tropey and a little predictable. On the other hand, I, I kind of let it go a little bit because Jay Willow Wilson is, she's not, she's, she's making it clear that Poison Ivy, she's still a killer. She's a killer. 
And of course, you know, uh, I personally, you know, uh, she should, uh, she actually killed a couple of, uh, uh, I mean, even the, there was a couple of, uh, farm landowners that she killed an issue too, who, you know, they couldn't just be landowners. They, they were landowners that had to say something insulting to her, or they had to say something, uh, sexually derogatory. I mean, you know, I think that there's, there's, I find it interesting that on the one hand, well, she's not really a killer, but the people that she kills, even though it's wrong to kill them, these were really jerks. It's like, eh, you know, I, I'm still inclined to think, and this, and I know this was intent, this has to be intentional on J. Bella Wilson's part, and that's kind of why I like it is, well, you know, this is still a kick-ass murdering, murdering woman. This, this woman is psychopathic. She's a murderer. She is actually working at an Amazon plant to spread a virus to wipe out humanity. Uh, and she decides while she's there to kill the boss who, who she's sexual, who, who is sexually harassing another coworker who she ends up sleeping with herself at the end of this. Yeah, but story. the woman comes on. The woman comes on. You said she decides to have sex. She doesn't decide to have sex. This woman basically just. Well, she decides to have sex. It was consensual. She certainly decided. Yeah. I, and there's not, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, I get well, it. But, but again, again, to be very meta, she she herself. Ivy herself mentions while she's feeling a little guilty about having sex with this woman when she still has feelings for, you know, she, she says, I love Harley. She talks about the fact that when, when she uses her powers, you know, especially to the extent she uses them to take this boss out, that it leaves her somewhat in a daze. Mm. So, you, I mean, it could be problematic. You think about it. It's certainly not a, you know, a date rape situation. She does, <laughs> it is consensual, but she maybe isn't thinking as clearly as she could. Also, the other thing I wonder about you, it's, you bring up a good point. Um, she's in the American South and G. Willow Wilson is sort of pulling no punches in terms of, <laughs> yeah, the landowners down there, everybody being insulting and kind of scumbags. And, you know, she's certainly saying something about it, sort of tongue in cheek, I, I suppose, and maybe trying to be a little covert about it. But if you stop to think about it, she's definitely saying something about, you know, the Republican states and the United, you know, red states, if you will, the United States. You would sort of expect that behavior, you know, in a red state, if you're an attractive woman, that you're going to be, you know, hit on and um, treated in a derogatory manner in, in that part of the, the United States. So yeah. whether that's accurate or not, it certainly seems to be because it, yeah. it's well, been clear that that's where this has been taken place. I, in the, I, I, the, I get the uh, impression that you uh, – and this is a compliment to the writing. I, I think you're a little bit more uh, – forgiving of maybe the of uh poison ivy that than i am here uh only because well, I, wasn't at, I wasn't at first i wasn't at first until i found out okay she's dying like i i don't agree with her actions but i understand why she's making the choices she is yeah she's yeah. dying she's yeah she's, well you know yeah no 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 fair enough but she's 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 not She's even if she wasn't dying, she'd still be killing. I never got the impression that she's killing. I mean, she's she's still she's still hardcore lethal, and that and frankly, that's the way I like my poison ivy. Okay, so I like that. What what I find interesting here is is that uh, Jay Willow Wilson is trying to sort of ride a, a balance uh, here between almost suggesting, well, planting little seeds that well, yeah, but she's not that bad. Well, no, 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 she's that bad. She's she's she betrays Harley. She's got no sense of loyalty. She kills. She's, and I'm thinking like, well, and so I'm not as forgiving as you to let that slide or let that slide. She's a villain and I, I'm not supposed to let it slide. I, I view this as she's not a sympathetic villain to me. She's a murderer. She has a choice. 
she sleeps with someone uh, she she who who I never even thought of what you said as a matter of fact about it's an, it brings up some uncomfortable questions did uh, is this black woman who kissed her was she was she sort of like attracted to her because of the pixel dust that comes off <laughs> Ivy's body I don't know but I mean it kind of makes you wonder it's like and and I think well you know maybe it might be disturbing but Good. I think that actually makes the character more interesting. And it just goes to show how screwed up the relationship between Harley and Poison Ivy is, as it bloody well should be, because they're two psychopaths. And so I, I kind of like this. So I, I kind of like even the way we're talking about it, because it's like, hmm, I, I, I'm sort of uncomfortable and on edge with Poison Ivy. And that's kind of the way I like it. Yeah, again, it's an interesting take. Um, and like I said, from the beginning, we we both were sort of shocked when this first issue of this came out, just how brutal Ivy was. She's certainly, like you said, pulling no punches. So uh, I guess we'll see how it all wraps up. If she ends up, um, you know, deciding that she made a mistake or, you know, how does she reconcile with Harley after this? And, you know, it's a lot of those same questions about like Jean Grey, you know, why Marvel decided they had to kill her. Cause she, there has to be consequences for those actions. Marvel or DC hasn't seemed to really know what to do with Ivy in, in recent years. Everybody wants her to be with Harley and, you know, does that work? I, yeah. Again, I think she works better as out and out villain. That's certainly what she's been in this series, but I don't know how you reconcile that with who Harley is now, which, you know, let's face it. Harley's a hero these days. Again, yeah. we can debate whether or not that was a good choice. <laughs> I feel like it was a monetary choice for DC. Yeah. Um, so whether or not that's great story-wise, how she can be with Poison Ivy after the choices Pamela's made here, I guess, remains to be seen. So, uh, All right. Last book we're going to talk about is Dear Detective. This is from Lee Bermejo, uh, the letter art by Jared Fletcher. This is a very interesting book, if you will. Uh, everybody talking about oh, all these variant covers, making money left and right, uh, propping up the industry. Now DC's taking it one step further where we get a a book that's supposed to be more of a traditional comic book, but it's nothing but covers inside. So um, there's some great covers uh, to this by Lieber Mayo. So there's the main cover that also has a foil variant that's a 1 in 50. And then there's a 1 in 25 cover where Batman's crouching on this fire escape with a neon sign next to him. But then inside, interspersed with these text pieces are just a bunch of covers from uh, variant covers from Lee Bermejo that were recently used for his run on detective comics when he was the variant cover artist. So when I first heard about this, I was like, okay, uh, Lee Bermejo is doing a Batman book and it's called dear detective. I was excited. I'm a big Lee Bermejo fan. Lee's a great guy. I'm a huge fan of his art. And then when I looked at it closer, I'm like, wait, this is just a collection of his covers. Okay. You know, I have his art book. I, you know, wouldn't have all these covers, but you know, nice to have them uh, all together in in one, uh, one comic. Uh, But then I was like, wait, they're trying to actually turn it into a story. And I looked at it a few weeks ago. I didn't take the time to actually read all the text pieces and it just, it kind of bugged me. It's like, what is this? It's kind of a mess. Like what's going on? Um, so my, my initial reaction was a little bit negative in terms of trying to take a bunch of covers and turn it into a story. But I took the time to read it this last weekend in preparation for this episode. And I got to say that I, I've done a complete 180. This works 
on such a fantastic level that I found myself wondering if this was something Lee had planned all along with these covers. So the covers for these Detective Comics issues, they're not in any sort of particular order in relation to the way they came out on uh, the covers of the individual issues of Detective Comics. But when they're put in this order in this book, they definitely tell a story, which I think is just fantastic because there is some element of storytelling when you're doing a singular image. And I, I talk to cover artists about this all the time. You know, what are you trying to capture? You know, in concept, uh, when you're in that concept phase of, you know, you know, they just say, draw cover, you know, how do you plan it out? What are you thinking? I almost had to think, well, was this something that Lee had in the back of his mind all along? Because when you put these covers in this particular order, it works so well. And then there is this added mystery in these text pieces because there are various times in the text pieces where uh, letters of the alphabet are replaced by symbols, which, you know, it reminds me of like the Zodiac um, messages. If anybody's familiar with the Zodiac killer and the cryptograms and ciphers and whatnot that he sent to the police and to the local newspaper. So it's, it's kind of along those lines and it's, these text pieces are a criminal uh, villain talking directly to Batman and we're reading it as, as Batman would read it. And so with these symbols, there's obviously this mystery of trying to figure out who the big bad is that's, you know, behind this. And they're very kind of cryptic and vague messages. And once you get to the end, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out who the villain is. Um, I'm not going to say who it is, even though we do spoilers, uh, cause I think you should go figure it out for yourself. But when you find out who the villain is, it then adds even more weight to these images and to this overall kind of narrative that Bermejo has managed to create by putting these covers in this particular order. So I thought this was really cool. I wouldn't want to see DC do this all the time, but this really worked for me. Um, and especially it was a little bit surprising because again, my first reaction was a little bit negative as much as I love the Bermejo art. Um, you know, I felt like, well, this is just sort of a money grab. Um, just, it doesn't, it's not additive, you know, other than, Hey, yeah, I get all these awesome covers and this great art in one book. It, it didn't feel like more, much more beyond that. It felt a little pretentious with these text pieces. But when I took the time to actually read the text pieces and decode everything, uh, I ended up really enjoying it. I was like, wow, that was pretty damn cool and, and pretty awesome. So, uh, what were your thoughts? What'd you think? I agree with you. And, uh, I'm just going to go one step further and say, what a fantastic idea for uh, for other cover artists to do. If you've got a long streak, uh, especially for to be a blunt about it, I would love I would love Adam Hughes. The next time Adam Hughes has a string of covers for Black Widow or Wonder Woman or whatever, pick your pick your uh, character. I would love if there was a, a theme or a a through line, a, a narrative through line for the various covers, because one of my pet peeves when it comes to covers, generally speaking, and lots of people have this, I'm not alone, but I, I, I don't like when covers are disconnected from the story. I'm old school. I like to have some thematic relationship between the content on a cover versus the story itself. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the Lee Bermejo covers, they're, they're beautiful, gorgeous covers, but they got nothing to do with the content of the comic. And to, to find out that, what's well, because they're telling their own story. Well, that's pretty cool. And, and, and to actually put them in a comic book. I like that. I, it's actually thinking outside the box a little bit. So, so, I mean, 
So even if you do disagree and while well, you can disagree with me and say, well, I don't care if comp covers have nothing to do with the insides. I just want a great art. Okay, fine. But I like it's to me, it's a bonus. It's a welcome bonus that, hey, not only are we getting these great covers, but we're actually getting a story uh, if you get all of them. And and the, it, it's just a really good idea. And, and I agree with you. I uh, when I first saw this, I thought it was I thought it was a little bit self pretentious. Like, oh, what, what is this nonsense? All this writing and and I like you. This is the one that I actually did read because it's it's easy to read. It's it's a nice easy read, and and there's something really nice about having having all the words on one page, and then and then the next page is this gorgeous art, and it there it it sort of reinforces a cinematic feel to it. And, uh, you know, it works. It, it worked really well. And so, yeah, I definitely, I'm actually, I can't believe I'm saying this because, but but I'll probably end up buying this. I don't know if it's going to be a hardcover or, uh, I, I don't, do you know, is this is this just a paper, uh, softcover mega? Is this going to be, I you think, know? I mean, it, it is, I, I got to think it's some sort of prestige type format because it is, I think it's like eight bucks. It's like seven ninety nine. Yeah. So I can't imagine it's just like a regular regular comic it's got to be you know more more than that but yeah the uh the, i really would like to get that one in 25 cover um and I, i'm curious what the foil of the regular cover looks like uh as well but that's a one in 50 that might be a little yeah. more well, than just think spend. if you're a just just think if you're a lee, lee bermejo fan how not now you have an extra incentive to go and buy all these covers you know i know it, it's I hard know. To, you know yeah, I'm a huge Bermejo fan. I've I have all these like I always buy all you know all the covers that he does. Um, and I mean it's not a big deal when he's on a series that I already buy physically. What I don't necessarily like is when he goes on to you know something like a Harley Quinn. I don't you know, I'm not usually buying Harley Quinn, uh, but I'll go buy Harley Quinn if he's doing you know doing the cover. So um, so I already collect detectives, so that wasn't a big deal, but. Yeah, I'm buying these uh, again because, like, yeah, I think it it works really well. So I haven't actually seen what it looks like, but yeah, it is seven ninety nine. So it, it must be you know some prestige type type format. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for the individual books that are coming out this week. We do have a few collections: Action Comics Volume Two, The Arena Trade Paperback, uh, which I don't think has that the War World one shot. Uh, it just collects Action Comics. Uh, 1036 through 1041. So leading up to the war world apocalypse um, that, that concludes that story. And then we have Batman urban legends, volume three trade paperback. We have punchline, the trial of Alexis K hardcover, which collects the backups that were in the Joker, which uh, I don't know that Rocky or I could recommend no. uh, Robin's being Robin trade paperback. That's the Tim Seeley story it ended up being pretty solid story. That's the one that won the first DC round Robin um, no, that was a pure coincidence that Robbins won the first round Robin. And then uh, Nubia and the Amazons has a hardcover that comes out, which collects that four issue series that we just finished talking about uh, tonight. So uh, as far as uh, the comic source goes, I did mention that uh, we do have an interview coming up with uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing this week. And then Spawn Daily has returned on YouTube and will return with audio only uh, episodes as well later this week. So um yeah. And also, we, we Rocky and I will have our monthly Best Jacket Spotlight coming up later this week to talk about all the August-ish issues, <laughs> I guess we'll say, of Best Jacket because actually the second issue of Dudley Dotson actually 
comes out today as you're listening to this, September 6th. But all the rest of the best jacket stuff for August came out, obviously, in August. So we'll talk about all those later this week. Uh, anything you want to tease, Rock? Uh, well, we'll be reviewing the best jacket, uh, Snyder Comics, as well. And then uh, usually every Sunday night, we skipped it this week, but uh, I, I review some indie comics with uh, Jim at Word Science DC. So I do that as well. So, uh, But before we go, I just want to – what's the pick of the week? What's your pick of the week this week? Uh, yeah, I was going to – I'm just pulling up all the regular issues in front of me to see if I can figure out uh, – it's, it's, it's a tough choice, you know, because – both uh, Dark Crisis and Flashpoint Beyond seem to be wanting to roll back that idea of the Omniverse. So it's it's really tough. Uh, it could go for either of those. Um, I mean, the Dark Detective we just talked about is amazing as well. Lots, so a lot of good books this week. But ultimately, I think I'm going to have to go with... Oh, man. I... I'm going to have to go with Dark Crisis. And what puts it over the top for me is the Daniel Semper art. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good choice. I, it's, to me, it's down to the, it's down to two, uh, Dark Crisis and, uh, Flashpoint Beyond for me. I, I gave it to Flashpoint Beyond only because I just, I, I just, I thought we had a, some interesting revelations there. And, but they're both really good. So actually, and Batman, I really enjoyed Batman as well, but I'd go Flashpoint Beyond. So, uh, all right, we 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 got, yeah, we just, covered all the yeah, covered all the bases, covered everything. Yeah, <laughs> all right, yep, that's gonna do it, everybody. We appreciate you joining. As always, don't forget to head over to YouTube if you listen to the audio only. Do a search for Rocky's channel and subscribe, like, leave comments, all that stuff. Uh, the name of the channel is Comic Space Boom exclamation point. So just do a quick search. Uh, conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and you're not subscribed to the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcast. Do a search for the comic source and subscribe. We appreciate the support, and that way you don't uh, miss out on any of our content. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.